Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the So Video Games podcast, where we talk about any game at all, including new stuff, old stuff, and anything in between. If we're playing it, we'll be talking about it. Today we are recording on September 9th. My name is Corey Motley. I'm a staff writer at GameCritics.com, also September 9th, 2018. I should probably make that clear. Um, I am Corey Motley. I'm 50% of the show. Joining me, as always, is Brad Galloway. He's the editor of Game Critics. How are you, Brad? I am good, but I was uh, a little silly today, and I did not eat breakfast before the show, so I am trying to focus my mental energy into not thinking about my growling <laughs> tummy, and i got to focus on games for the time being. But after this is done, I'm going to scarf something fierce. Well, hopefully, um, listeners, if... Brad's microphone picks up his rumbly tumbly sounds, then you'll know he's just <laughs> starving to death right now. All for the sake of the show. <laughs> it does sound like feral Winnie the Pooh, that's true. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. You wanna jump in and talk about some games? Before we talk about games, I just want to say that I have like a I know we talk about how you have a master or a monster backlog. I actually have like a proper backlog of games going on right now. And I picked two games this week that I feel good about talking about, but I could have chosen like two other ones. I have like three games that are waiting to be played in my queue and i feel properly backed up on games at the moment all right good so we're not going to run out of material anytime soon then absolutely not all right great excellent excellent also a quick shout out that we uh i'm sure most listeners know this but we do have banter section that comes after the show i thought today's banter was pretty good Corey. what'd you think i thought it was pretty good we talked about movies as usual we talked about social issues with movie directors we talked about Brad's book that he's mentioned every once in a while on the show. I think we, we had some good stuff, so stay tuned after the show if you want to hear that. Yeah, yeah, so check it out if you swing that way. So uh, I'm ready to talk about some games if you are. I am too, and the first game you have slated, you I, you, I see you tweeting about it for like probably like a month or two, and every week I'm waiting for you to send me the email that says, hey, I want to talk about this game this week, and every time you don't have it listed, I'm surprised because I know you've been playing it. And so it's finally, people are going to be like, this is the game he's talking about. But finally, I want to hear about this game now. Yeah, so Mario versus Rabbids Kingdom Battle. I tweet, yeah, I was tweeting about it pretty regularly for a while. I was playing it pretty consistently for a while on the Switch, of course. Uh, but like every time that, I was gonna bring it up on the show, we had something else that would come up. Like, it was like, oh, here's this other game that I have to talk about for game critics purposes, or here's this other thing that I promised the publisher I would get on the show, or or I just had something else that was more exciting, and I also didn't want to talk about it before I finished it, so there was a couple of weeks when I was playing it, but I didn't finish it, so then I would slot something else that I did finish, or just something that was more relevant at the time. Uh, but I did finish it a couple of weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, or maybe more than that. I don't know. Time is just a blur to me right now. It's all it's all one day after another in an endless slog forward. Um, but yeah, I'm ready to talk about it. Uh, so this is the game that got some big attention at E3, I want to say maybe like two years ago, or maybe... I don't think it was last... No, it, was, it must have been two years ago, where this was a collaboration between Nintendo and Ubisoft... And they, it got it got eyeballs because not only was it a surprise that Nintendo was putting out a Mario game, which was actually a turn-based XCOM-style tactics game, but also that it was a collaboration. Like, Nintendo doesn't do this very often. And I don't know if they've ever... Yeah, they have gotten together with 
Ubisoft in the past, although I don't know quite that they've gotten this deep in bed with them before. They've had Rabbids stuff around um, in the past. And for those people who don't know, Rabbids are Ubisoft's desperate attempt to have a cute mascot character. <laughs> you know the Rabbids, right, right, Corey? Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> They're fucking hot garbage trash bullshit. Like, I hate Rabbids. They're awful. They look like rabbits, but they've got buck teeth and googly eyes, and they look like big fucking doofuses, and they're just not funny. Like, okay, so just just really racist tangent for a second here. Oh, boy. Um, French humor is very different from American humor. Um, I mean, of course, as a people, as humans, we all have certain things in common, but I just don't like the French sense of humor. And, like, the perfect example of this is if you're old enough to know who Jerry Lewis is. Do you know who Jerry Lewis is? No, I don't. Wow, okay. Severely dating myself here. Hold on, but... hold on, hold on. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask who the wrong person is here. Is Jerry Lewis... No, I'm not even going to say it. Continue. <laughs> no, say it now because I want to know. Damn it. Uh, who, whenever you say that name, I'm thinking of the comedian who smashes watermelons with the hammer. Who is no, that, that guy? No, that is Gallagher. Damn it. Okay. Who is, yeah, from the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, he's a wacko. I haven't seen him in many years. But so Jerry Lewis, okay, um, was extremely famous in the United States for a long time. He was in many movies. He was a very famous comedian. Uh, he was the original Nutty Professor before Eddie Murphy took it over. He was mm. in like a, a like bunch of movies back in the day, like in the, I don't know. I couldn't even tell you right. I'm, I'm guessing the 50s, probably something like that. Um, but super famous. I never found him to be that funny. His sense of humor always irritated the shit out of me because my grandma <laughs> and grandpa really liked him a lot. They would watch him. I thought he was annoying as fuck. But he was enormous in France. They thought he was the funniest thing on earth. He was like a national hero in France. Pretty sure he was on a stamp in France. Like, he just won, like, every comedic award there was in France, which says a little bit about the French sense of humor. I just, it it does not click with me. I don't like a lot of French films. I don't like a lot of French comedies. Um, I know my wife is probably getting driven crazy right now listening to me in the background because she loves French stuff, which is totally <laughs> fine. No hate against anybody who likes French stuff. But for me personally, I it is abhorrent to me. I do not like it. And so Rabbids are the ultimate expression of like this French sense of humor, which I find to be really irritating. So if people like them, that's great. To me, they're hot garbage and I can't fucking stand them. So that's where I stand on Rabbids. And that will kind of color the rest of what I have to say about this game. Um, but he, the, so the developer of this guy from Ubisoft... I guess apparently it was a dream of his to like work at Nintendo or to work with Nintendo or to meet Shigeru Miyamoto at some point in his life. And like his dream came true. So he got to make a legit, actual Mario game, for real Mario game with for real Nintendo. And apparently he met Miyamoto and worked together with him for something, you know, whatever, whatever, to make this game happen. And he was the guy that was fucking crying um, in the audience when they talked about this game. If you go back and look at the E3 presentation, he is losing his shit in the audience, just tearful so proud of himself that he made this. I mean, and that's awesome. I don't want to take anything away from that. That's amazing. I'm happy that he got to make his dream happen. That is wonderful, and it's a good thing, and I'm so, you know, I'm glad for this guy. So I'm not taking anything away from that. But that was really, like, one of the big takeaways from this game was that this guy was, like, an emotional wreck that he got to make his dream come true. So cool. Good for him. Um, and I don't and I don't say that sarcastically. I say that genuinely. Uh, so getting back to the game, turn-based, grid-based, XCOM-alike game that's heavy on tactics where you take a team of Mario characters, Mario, Luigi, Princess Peach, and Yoshi, and you also have rabid characters who are body doubles for them. So there is a rabid dressed up like Peach, there's a rabid dressed up like Mario, 
Same for Luigi and um, Yoshi. It's part of the story, which I think is dumb. The story's not important. Basically, it's like, blah, 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 Mario's universe and the Rabbit's universe combined, blah, 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 whatever. It's, it doesn't matter. Um, but it's just a justification put, for putting the two things together. I hated the Rabbit characters. Hated them. Um, did not like them at all. And also, the Rabbits are the enemies in this game, which is fine, because I like shooting them. So killing them is fine. They were fine as bad guys, but having them on my team, I did not care for. But other than that, other than the Rabbids, I thought this game was great. Like, I thought it was excellent as a tactics game, excellent as a new iteration of a turn-based strategy. Um, not only was it cool because you got to see Mario in a whole new light. I mean, my favorite thing was having Mario characters on my team. Unfortunately, you always had to have at least one rabbit on your team, which sucked because <laughs> I wanted to, like, have Mario and Luigi and Princess Peach on my team, and that would have been cool, and I would have been fine shooting rabbits. But you must always have at least one rabbit, which blew. I could not stand that. But apart from that, so have you ever played XCOM, Corey? Or do you, are you familiar with turn-based tactics at all? Do you ever dabble in these? I am familiar with XCOM because whenever XCOM and XCOM 2 came out, they were like all the rage. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Patrick might have played XCOM a little bit. These games are not my thing, but I am familiar with them. Okay, cool. So turn-based tactics, um, you, you get a team together. Um, each character can, like, attack or do, like, certain, you know, special moves. You choose one or two moves and then, like, choose where you want them to be on the map. And then the enemy takes a turn, back and forth like that. So um, a pretty standard, like, at the base formula. But the thing that really made it cool was just the tweaks. I mean, first off, it's interesting to see Mario and Luigi and Peach. And they all have guns, which I thought was surprising. I thought they were going to find some other way to do it originally. Like, I thought they'd be throwing mushrooms or <laughs> maybe princess peach would have a pet piranha plant or something but they know they actually have like legit guns um they don't look like real guns which is great um they look like cartoony i don't know just like weird it's fantasy like, weapons like the guns in the same vein that like the splatoon people have guns sort of totally like it's clearly a gun it's clearly a firearm but it's not anything that looks like something from the real world which is fine i don't need to see mario with an m16 and there's google for that anyway <laughs> um so I was surprised by that, but I was also surprised at just how solid um, a game it is. You have a team of three on your team, and then the enemies um, are usually more than three. You're usually outnumbered, and you position yourself on the map. There's cover. You can take cover behind things, which will like reduce your percentage of getting hit. Um, the way that they do shooting is much better than XCOM. If anybody's familiar with XCOM, like well, something that makes you crazy about that series is like you can have a 96% chance to hit and still miss or something like the, the percentages seem like really super arbitrary. And so it's really frustrating where you're in a tight position. You really need this guy to make the shot. And then he whiffs the shot, even though you feel like you had it. And I mean, it, you know, crazy stuff. I mean, that's part of XCOM's appeal slash, uh, repugnance, but you know, anyway, they, they do it better in this time where you can very clearly see it's a hit or a miss, you know, right away. So they take the guesswork out of it, which I really like a lot. But the thing that really I like the most about this was the way that they reimagine movement. Um, people have played these games probably expecting, you know, walk a few squares, hide behind another cube or something, like, look, you know, like the, the screen lights up to tell you how far you can move. I mean, pretty standard stuff. But the twist is that these Mario characters can bounce off of each other. So, like, if, if Luigi holds out his hands, Mario can jump on top of him, and then it'll give him, like, this tremendous boost, either up, more vertically in the level, or further so, like, you really have to be very clever about your positioning where you, if you can't get behind a guy, you can't flank him. But if you move, you know, move Luigi here first and then you move Mario, bounce off of Luigi and Mario can jump back behind him. So you can really take advantage of, like, his aerial maneuvers. Um, so that works with anybody. 
And there was like a, a number of like little team mechanics like that where they kind of worked together in a very interesting way. So it was more than just the standard turn-based action formula. It wasn't just move and shoot, move and shoot. It was like move, shoot, bounce. And also each character had a slide maneuver where you could pass through an enemy and it didn't cost you any action points. It was like basically a free attack. So if you were clever about moving, using the bounce, and then using the slide, you could totally get in like a whole string of extra attacks that would help even the odds between you and the enemies. So it was almost like a tactics game crossed with a puzzle game where you had to really absorb the environment, really know your characters very well, and then really use that positioning a lot more than you would in a normal tactics team. Like, it wasn't just about clever cover and about, you know, making sure your grenadiers in the right place and making sure your snipers are in the right place. It's about, like, actively moving around the battlefield in a very fun, exciting, light, um, and really refreshing way. Like, it was a, something I don't think anybody's ever really done before in a tactics game like this. And I just it just was really neat to look at these challenges in a whole new light. So I like that a lot. Um, I finished the game all the way. I thought it was generally pretty good. I didn't really like the world design. I thought it was between battles you walk around. And for the most part, you're just walking from one battle to the other. But there's a few points where you can get really turned around and lost. And it was kind of unclear where you were going. So that was kind of a drag. But I mean, it was very minor speed bump in the big scheme of things. Overall, I thought it was um, really cute, very colorful. I really liked the way it played. It was very interesting. A little bit too long, maybe. But I still played it all the way through and really, really enjoyed it. And I liked it so much that I popped for the DLC, which stars Donkey Kong. I have not tried that yet, but I'm waiting um, for a quiet spot in the release calendar, and I'll maybe I'll jump in that again and do do a couple more hours of that. But it was good. Overall, really enjoyed it a lot. Um, big kudos to that guy. Don't know what his name is, but for bringing his vision um, to the Switch, I think that was very successful. Um, my only wish for a possible sequel is that they would get rid of all the rabbits because the rabbits fucking blow. <laughs> but other than that, it was a real big win. I really liked it a lot. Okay, so the takeaway that I'm getting from this <clears throat> is that it's basically XCOM, but all of the characters are cheerleaders because they can just do like tumbling moves and just launch people into the air and do like that kind of cheerleading stuff. That's all I'm getting here. Yeah. I mean, that's basically it. Like <laughs> I, I think that's pretty accurate and it was a neat way to kind of incorporate some of the things that Mario is known for. I wouldn't mind a little bit more like, you know, incorporating more of the actual 3D platforming concepts, but I think this was a really great first step. So yeah, cheerleading Mario and a bunch of dumb fuck rabbits. And but overall, great game. I definitely recommend it if you like tactics, if you like XCOM, or if you want something um, of this nature on the Switch. It's it's a uh, rabbits aside. It's a really super solid game. I thought it was great. <laughs> I so that's was, all I got to say. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say I like the idea of like the whole because like the the jumping and like the bouncing as silly as it sounds like. That's the kind of thing where, yeah, it probably would have made, like, an XCOM, like, a proper XCOM game more interesting and made the level design more interesting. But, like, if you had been playing it... Because XCOM is, like, it's very grim. It's, like, a very serious, grim game for the most part. And I feel like if they had incorporated that into XCOM, people would have been, like, what? Like, this, like... Because the game seems to take itself too seriously to, like, do, like, oh, let's, like, have you jump into my arms and I'll throw you in the air up to this, like, two-story building or something. But whenever you have a game like that and you basically copy and paste all the mechanics onto like a slightly more kid-friendly looking version of the game, then you can get away with that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. I, You know, it's funny you mention that because I, I did really like the first XCOM. Well, I mean, I like the original XCOM, but I also like the remake, which we now call the first XCOM. <laughs> and I haven't gotten into XCOM 2, but I mean, I think there's probably a little bit of like 
they do things like I think you have a robot which has different mobility. I think you've got a jetpack for snipers. I mean, there's there's some experimenting with it, but I but not in the way that Mario does it. The way that Mario does it to me, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know anybody that's ever done anything like this before, which I think is pretty cool. And anybody having a fresh idea like that is very valuable. Um, so I think it's great that it's 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 something that you know, but also something that you haven't seen before. And to do with Mario, I think is really a feat unto itself because I mean, Nintendo's Nintendo, and anything that Nintendo does is usually pretty safe you know i mean they don't they don't do a lot of risk taking with their ips so it was cool to see something like this happen yeah you can uh you can say that again about not taking risks with ips <laughs> yeah for sure for sure anyway so that was that was mario versus rabbits um let's get to you Corey. you're talking i'd be talking about the brookhaven experiment i i feel like i've heard about this but i couldn't tell you the first thing about it all right well i want to apologize in advance to anybody who's hoping from for, I don't know, console game coverage for me today because I'm talking about all VR 100%. Um, I know a few shows back I talked about getting an HTC Vive and I promise I'm going to play non-VR stuff. As a matter of fact, pretty much I only have like one other VR thing in my backlog right now and the rest is console stuff. But I'm talking about all VR stuff today. So maybe if this sounds cool and you've been like thinking about getting VR, then this will be like the thing that makes you want to say, yeah, or maybe you'll just roll your eyes and be like, oh man, I... I never want VR and I don't want to hear about this. So just full disclosure, this show is like 100% VR for me today. But I played, um, I've been playing a game called the Brookhaven Experiment on the HTC Vive. I think it works with the Oculus and I know there's a PlayStation 4 PSVR version. So if you have a PSVR, I know it's on there too. Um, This is not uh, PC exclusive. Um, It's basically, I mean, to boil it down to its smallest like ingredients it's basically a zombie wave shooter which doesn't sound particularly interesting nor does it sound like something i would want to play oh okay okay i think dan weissenberger reviewed this for us at game Critics. did he not do you know if he did or not i'm pretty sure i don't know but i think Uh, it's been out for a while so if he did he probably did it a little while back okay now you're now it's coming back to me go on go on sorry to interrupt you go ahead yeah so um as you know getting a vr set you're kind of always looking for interesting vr games to play because to be completely honest a lot of vr games out there feel like tech demos they don't feel like full-fledged games and some of them feel like uh you know like a first person game and vr was just kind of sort of like mapped into it you know which is all well and good and whatnot but the brookhaven experiment kind of feels like an actual i mean it is an actual like built from the ground up vr game but um it's basically a kind of like a zombie like a post-apocalyptic wave shooter where in every level it's and this is i'm gonna describe it it's gonna sound really boring but i promise i actually like this game um every level is you in an environment you don't run around you don't do like the teleporting thing a lot of vr games do the teleport thing where you can like point your controller to somewhere in the environment you hold a button down and it like makes a little arc to that section kind of like when you're throwing a grenade in a game it looks like that and you let go of the trigger and it like teleports you there because running around in vr is kind of weird and it induces motion sickness so like, uh, but it doesn't have that. You're literally just standing in one spot. And it's a it's a zombie wave shooter. So you're standing in a spot. Some levels, like the opening level, you're just in a hallway. And there's just, like, the entrance in front of you that the hallway goes down. And then you look behind you, and there's the entrance that goes that way. And there's zombies that come from both of those areas. But in other levels, there's a lot more going on in them. Like, in the second level, for example, you're in, like, this really dark um, town square kind of area. And basically you're in the open kind of like in this grassy area next to a parking lot. So enemies can come from any direction. They don't just come down. They're not filtered down one hallway or two hallways or whatnot. So every level has its own unique sort of environment. And 
the game is essentially kind of like Doom in a sense, where it starts slow and it introduces like one kind of enemy in the first level. And then as the levels build up, it kind of introduces like a new enemy and the different enemies all kind of have different attacks. They move at different speeds. Um, and you have your right, well, you can do it right or left-handed, but the way I do it, your right hand is your gun. And over the course of the game, you unlock different guns. Like you start with a pistol that looks like a Beretta and it's kind of like has moderate attack value. It doesn't shoot very quickly. And then I think in the second level, you unlock a gun that looks like a Glock. And um, every time you finish a wave, there's like three to five waves per level. And there's like a break between the waves. In the break, you can either choose to refill your health if you've been damaged, or you can choose to refill your ammo if you haven't been damaged, or if you feel like you didn't take enough damage to refill your health. And then you can respec your guns. And you find items to spec your guns out by shooting them in the environment like so there'll be like a little like briefcase that's like glinting ever so slightly like way off in the distance and if you shoot it and complete the level then you get that either it's either a weapon or it's a weapon mod or something like that and the weapon mods like you can have a flashlight that's attached to your gun you can have a laser sight that's attached to your gun you can have a muzzle brake that brings the the uh, recoil down there's a buff you can put on your gun one of them like gives a higher chance of critical hits um, there's body armor you can wear and there's like several different grenade types and you can equip all of those and decide how, you know, you want to go about, uh, the missions and the different waves, but your right hand has the gun or one hand has the gun. The other hand, uh, doubles. It either has a flashlight that you can hold, which has limited, um, power, or you can switch it to a knife by pressing the thumb pad on the controller. I usually equip a flashlight on my gun and hold the knife most of the time instead of holding the flashlight. Cause I don't think... It's super duper necessary. Um, but a lot of the environments are dark. So the flashlight, the handheld flashlight is brighter than the gun flashlight, if that makes sense. So, and it's basically, I mean, it's just like a wave shooter. Like you're in an environment, you're kind of like panicking and looking all around you and it doesn't sound very interesting. And if and this just, were like- You're just standing in one spot, right? Like yeah, you're, you're just standing in one spot. Yeah. And I mean, you can like crouch or like move a little bit. Like you can kind of like take a step to the side or to the front or back, but you're not like running through the level. Um, but it's just like, I mean, it sounds incredibly dull, but the fact that it's in VR makes it kind of an incredible experience because like it, it really, I mean, it looks great first of all, and it really like sells itself well. Like the sound design is really incredible because you can hear like, you can hear like the slow moving zombies and like the sound, of course it's got like surround sounds. So you can like kind of hear whenever they're starting to come up behind you. And there's a really big kind of like hulking zombie enemy that makes these like really loud foot stomps, but you can hear them like all, like whenever they're really far away before it gets up to you. So every time you hear them, I'm like frantically spinning around and like looking over my shoulders, like trying to figure out where it's coming from. And you can't always see it until it gets close. And um, you have like alternate ammo you can use. Like you can, one of the ammo types, you can do like, a, like an explosive ammo or an armor piercing ammo or something like that. So you can like switch to that if you're in trouble. You can use your gun to melee or the flashlight to melee, or you can just use the knife you have to like cut things that get too close to you and like headshots on zombies or one hit kills. So you have to like really be careful about aiming. And I mean, there's not a lot to it. It's just like a wave shooter and you go level per level, but I really like this game. Like it's really intense. Um, it's actually scary a lot of the time, even though you're just standing on spot because like Sometimes enemies will really sneak up on you or sometimes you'll be facing one direction. And you'll be really focused on shooting like 
you know, these two or three zombies in front of you, and then you, like, look over your shoulder, and there's a zombie, like, right in your face, like, about to punch you, and it's really scary, and there's, like, a level on a bridge where um, there's, there's kind of, like, a boss battle at the end, and it's these two, like, pterodactyl, like, zombie pterodactyl things. Zombie and, pterodactyls? Yeah, what? it's fucked up, and... And I, like, it's scary because it's pretty dark, so you can't see them whenever they're flying above you, but you can, like, hear their, like, shriek in the air, and I didn't know, like, what was going on whenever I first started, because sometimes the game does a really good job of, like, pacing out when enemies come to where you feel incredibly uneasy, where you're like, okay, is the wave over, or is it not over? Like, what, like, what is going to come next? And you're really kind of concerned about what's coming down the pipe for you. And in this instance, it was, like, these zombie pterodactyl things, and... Like, I I was, like, frantically looking up in the air, like, pointing my flashlight up there, trying to see if I could see anything that was going on. And because every level supports you, you know, turning 360 degrees and looking around you, I, like, have my, like, gun and my flashlight up, and I'm, like, like terrified, like, looking around. And I turn around. There's a freaking pterodactyl that was, like, five feet away from, like, swooping into my face whenever I turned around, and it scared the hell out of me, but in, like, the best way, and I'm glad that I was home alone because I, like, yelped out loud and was, like, really scared whenever it happened, uh, and I beat the level, so that was good news, but I still have not beat the game. I think I'm one or two levels away because it starts to get really hard toward the end because they introduce a lot of enemy types, um... Like, eventually they introduce these, like, really gross spiders, and they shoot web at you, and if the web gets on your gun, you have to, like, shake the controller and shake the gun in order to, like, break it free of the web, or sometimes they'll shoot web around you entirely, and it breaks your entire field of view for 360 degrees, and you have to, like, frantically, like, swipe your knife and gun around to, like, get the web off of you, and... There's, like, one level where you're in these sewers, and not only are you looking down, like, six paths that are around you, but if you look directly up, there's, like, a drain that's coming down, and sometimes, like, the spiders will climb down the drain to drop down on top of you, so you have to be, like, looking up and, like, shooting up into the drain to try to to try to try stop them, and, I mean, it, the, like I said before, there's not a lot to it other than it just being a wave shooter, but the fact that it's in VR and the fact that you have, like, you know, full 360 degree motion and it has like pretty good weapons and weapon loadouts and kind of like customizability on that. Like there's a couple pistols, there's like a fully automatic Uzi, there's like a powerful like Desert Eagle type gun, there's a double barrel shotgun, um, there's like a crossbow that you can get, which I haven't used yet. So you have like a pretty good range of options. Like if you keep failing and keep saying like, oh, well, I keep failing, what am I doing wrong? Like you can maybe try to equip a different weapon or equip different weapon mods or equip a different type of grenade and maybe see if that'll help you the next time around. Uh, my only complaint so far is that every level consists of like probably like three to five waves of enemies. You get a break between the waves, like I said before, but the shitty thing is that if you get like say three waves in and die, you have to do them all over again. It doesn't just checkpoint you to the last wave. So, yeah, it's really unfortunate because at the level I'm in, like, I can get through the first couple of waves pretty quickly, but then it, like, really starts to heat up in the third and fourth waves, and um, and I keep dying, like, the third or fourth wave in, and then I have to do all of them over again, which, I mean, maybe if I were better, then I would, you know, not suck at the game so much. But it's just, like, really intense because it's one of the levels where there's enemies coming from, like, all every direction around you except for above you, and... Um, I keep getting, like, you know, probably 80% of the way through, and then I keep failing, and then I have to do all of them over again, and I haven't tried it in probably, like, a week, but um, but I really like this game. I mean, it's, it, 
it's just a wave shooter, but the fact that it's in VR and that, you know, it, you're just like really playing it and like, you know, like crouching and it's just like the maneuverability of VR. And this is something I'm going to talk about the next game I'm going to play is just like, I know you're not like sold on VR, but it's just like really, it's just really makes you think about playing the game in a different way. Cause instead of like pressing the right thumbstick to melee in a video game or, you know, pressing the crouch button, like those are things you like actually have to do in real life. So I'm like waving my arms around like a madman in like the spare bedroom in here trying to like, you know, cut these zombies with my knife or trying to like duck their punches or bites or whatever. And it feels ridiculous, but it's really like, immersive in a silly but really great way so i mean this game i really like it i mean if you have vr if you're thinking about it and maybe you're looking for you know a list of killer apps or something for it i would i mean it's not it's no super hot super hot still the best but um it's up there this is probably my second favorite perhaps vr game i've played so far interesting um you know I'm not on the VR train. I mean, we we all know that. Everybody oh, yeah. who listens to the show knows that. So, like, I'm listening to you talk <laughs> about it, and I, I, I admire your enthusiasm. Like, I feel your energy, so I can tell that you like it. But as I'm listening to it, I'm like, man, this just sounds like the typical... <laughs> The typical VR game, and what I mean by that is this game would be bullshit if it wasn't in VR. Like, if you're, what you're describing to me sounds like a knockoff version of House of the Dead. I, which is, I actually, I agree with you 100%. It, this would be bullshit if it weren't in VR, but because it's in VR, it really makes the game shine. Right, like, and I mean, so like, I guess, okay, I mean, I can't really talk because <laughs> I've, I've played very little VR. Um, I have done a little bit, but I don't own a headset, so I only go to, like, you know, play demos or... If I'm at a, a studio or something like that, so I played very little VR. So I'm not I'm not speaking like an expert here. I please don't think that I'm an expert at all. Um, <laughs> at least at least with this, I'm an expert in some things, or maybe not. Who knows? Anyway, uh, I just I just hear you talk, and I'm like, it's a fucking wave shooter. Like it's it's House <laughs> of the Dead in VR. Like so what? Like and not I mean not to take away from you. I mean I'm, I, you clearly like it, but like every time I look at somebody at, at VR games or like when I get a pitch from a publisher, they're like, Oh, it's a shooter in VR. Or it's like, Oh, it's this other thing in VR. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. It's like, <laughs> so what? Like who fucking cares? Like, I don't, I, I just, I, I find it really impossible to get excited about something like this. Um, because like, yeah, if you took away the VR, it's, it would be like, it sounds like it would be like a $5 game on steam or like some, some dumb thing on PSN that would be charging like eleven ninety nine, and you would like play it for like one afternoon and forget about it. Like it doesn't sound like, like anything fancy or fun or special. And I keep wanting to hear about something that leverages VR in a new way other than, other than simply immersing you. Like I get that and I get that's what VR does naturally. And I get that that's a great advantage that it has, but like just hearing about it, I'm like, I wouldn't play this for more than like half an hour. Like it just seems like just something really boring and expected and standard, you know? Yeah, I I totally get that. And like I'm not trying to be like like the oh, you have to go buy a $500 VR set so that you can play this like zombie wave shooter cuz I get that it's like I'm sort of moving into that territory where I I'm exploring this like kind of upscale niche market that's not definitely I wouldn't like recommend like oh, everybody go buy this, but I mean, I'm pleasantly surprised with how much I'm enjoying the game and how often kind of scary and tactical you have to be while playing it. Um, and I mean, yeah, like I agree with you hundred percent on, you know, it, it, it's just a wave shooter. Like there's really nothing more to it. And if this were on console, not in VR, I would never play it. It would be boring as hell. Right, like, I don't, yeah, totally, totally. That's what, I'm, that's what, I'm, that's what's, that's yeah. what occurs to me. 
And like, because I don't even like wave shooters. Like, whenever you have like like horde mode and like gears or whatever, like I don't like that because I like working toward a more definitive objective. But I mean, just the fact that I feel like a like a dumb broken record here. But just the fact that it's in VR really like makes the game shine and makes it a lot more interesting and just really puts you in the place like of being in the middle of this like gross forest with zombies walking at you from every angle and really having to like pay attention and be tactical and you know aim and shoot and you know you're not just holding left trigger right trigger to aim and shoot there's just a lot more going on but i mean at the end of the day it is silly and i it's not worth you know buying vr4 but i certainly enjoy this game one really quick thing before we move on. Um, so, you know, and I think we've even talked about this before. I mean, you know that at Game Critics, we spend a lot of time and effort um, covering games with accessibility in mind. I mean, we have a lot of uh, deaf gamers who come to our site. We have a lot of uh, physically disabled gamers and people have uh, colorblindness. And we're like one of the only sites on the web who who put that information into our reviews. And we, we try to do our best at that. It's really important to us as a site. So like listening to this and the way that you describe the audio, it seems like a lot of this game relies on the audio. Like you were kind of describing like positional audio and like knowing cues about where to turn because you could hear something. Um, if a deaf person was to play this game, would there be visual cues that would tell them the same information or would you just have to like spin around at random because you couldn't <laughs> hear where people are coming from? Uh, there are no visual cues that I know of. I don't think that's an option. And like, to be honest, VR as a whole is not great for disabled people. I mean, for the most part, VR requires good eyesight, good hearing, and the ability to stand up and, like, move around a room. So, I mean, as shitty as it sounds, like, I don't want to sound like, you know, like a first-class citizen here, you know, an able-bodied person talking about how great VR is. But it's really, like, it's not good for people who don't have, you know, all their five senses intact. I mean, if you're deaf, there's probably a lot, or hard of hearing, there's probably some VR games out there that you could still play that would be pretty good. And I mean, it's not impossible to play the Brookhaven experiment. If you're hard of hearing, you just really have to pay a lot of attention to what's going on around you and be constantly looking around, which I mean, I am anyway in the audio, but the audio certainly helps, um, you know, to learn where to tip you off on where things are coming from. But yeah, there's no visual cues for anything like that. And I feel like I mean, shit, like VR is still so much in its infancy that I don't think a lot of developers are thinking about stuff like that for disabled gamers. I mean, I feel like in, in just the past, like, you know, three to five years alone, like console games, which have been around for decades, have just really started coming around on accessibility on a lot of, like, uh, you know, major titles and stuff like that. And I feel like VR is still very much in that infancy where it's just one of those things that, you know, which is shitty uh, that just developers aren't paying a lot of attention to because they're just trying to get out the game and, you know, not take the extra time to do that kind of stuff because probably because the market for VR is so small as it is anyway, that it would probably be, I don't know, money down the drain for them if they were really putting a lot of time and effort into accessibility options, which I'm not making excuses for them. It's awful, but, um, VR is, you know, it's just a different, a different thing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other show. I've got a lot of strong feelings on that, as I'm sure you can imagine. And I mean, I think that accessibility is something we could talk about for a while. So I'm just going to let that go because we don't have like another three <laughs> hours to talk about that. But yeah, I mean, I think that's another big reason why I'm not really sold on VR right now is because we're just starting to see those strides in accessibility in console games. Um, and just to, 
you know, just to be faced with that whole thing again with people saying, oh, yeah, but, oh, yeah, but, oh, yeah, but is like really kind of a turnoff to me since I spend so much time and effort on accessibility. So anyway, different discussion. Just curious. I suspected that would be the case. Um, so I'm not too surprised. I think most VR games are just audio, 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 and everybody is not is not taking accommodations for anybody else. But whatevs, whatevs. All right. Uh, a number of questions of me. Any final thoughts before we move on? Uh, I don't think so. We can skip ahead to what what do you want to talk about next all right so ironically this is your week for vr um i don't know if you planned it that way or not uh this is going to be my week for turn-based strategy which was 100 percent ironically not planned i did not mean to have two strategy games to talk about but it just broke down that way uh just talked about mario versus rabbids turn-based strategy and i'm going to also be talking right now about into the breach which just came to switch was also on pc uh, is a brand new, well, I mean, new to Switch, turn-based strategy game. It is kind of like 16-bit-ish, kind of looks like something that could be on the Super Nintendo visually. Uh, it's all about robots. A player has a team of robots, different mechs, and they're fighting giant bugs and trying to protect various cities from them and just kind of do turn-based strategy like that. It's from Subset Games, which put out uh, FTL. Did you ever play FTL? Uh, Patrick did a lot on Steam, but I never played it. Okay. I never played FTL either because it never came to console. I was waiting for it to, and it never did. And apparently, I guess it's never going to since those guys moved on to this game. Uh, (laughs) But I heard nothing but good things about FTL, people raving about it. And I heard similar raves for Into the Breach when it hit PC. Like, for a while, my Twitter was, like, all about this game for, like, like, a solid two weeks. And I took note of it, and it seemed definitely up my alley. I like robots, I like giant bugs, I like turn-based strategies, seemed like my kind of thing. But I, you know, I it takes moving heaven and earth to get me to play something on PC, so I decided I was going to wait. <laughs> but this game just came out for Switch, I want to say a week ago, and boy, the hype was real. Like, the all the praise, all of the... The kudos, all of the hype, and it's absolutely 100% justified. This game is fantastic. I wasn't sure how much I was going to like it. I mean, it seemed like my thing when I started, and I basically downloaded the game to my Switch, and I, like, literally didn't put it down for, like... I mean, it took me about 40 hours, so, like, that's all I did. (laughs) I stayed up late at night, like, way too late. I was actually late to work a couple times. It was all I was doing at home. Uh, it was impossible for me to put this game down. I love this game. I think it is absolutely brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Um, so like I said, it's a, it's a turn-based strategy. You've got like an eight by eight grid and you have a team of three mechs. They come in all sorts of different flavors. Um, they're like some that are big punchy robots. There are some that have flamethrowers. There are some that have gravity effects. Like they can push enemies or pull enemies, there are some that like shoot smoke that like um, can negate attacks. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different different um, types of mechs. Team of three, they preset some teams that kind of all work together, or you can also customize your own if you want to just mix and match. You do have to unlock them, so it takes a little bit of learning before you can have the full suite of choices. But it doesn't take too long. Uh, other than that, so you, you pick three mechs, you get into a map. Bugs appear from under the ground. They burrow up from under the ground, and there's a variety of bugs. Some are spitters. Some are biters, some are flyers, you know, like whatever. I'm sure you can guess how the bugs go. But basically the point is to protect any city that you go into. Like you have, I think, um, I want to say like eight or ten points, like city points. And every time a building gets destroyed, you lose one city point. And if you lose all your city points, the game is over, the bugs take over. So you really got to protect 
the populace, protect these cities. And also along the way, there's also many, many different little sub-objectives like, hey, there's a train that's going and you need to protect the train. Or, hey, there's like a dude in a museum, protect the museum or, you know, something like that. Or like, you know, there's all sorts of many, many objectives to keep it spicy. So that's a really good formula altogether. But really what makes this game brilliant is the way that they kind of metagame it out. So in addition to like learning the different teams and, and the different strategy of, of each team, there's also like the difficulty settings, easy, medium, and hard, which seems pretty standard. But if you play it on easy, you can choose to... Okay, so okay. I got to back it up again. I'm sorry. I'm saying this wrong. <laughs> getting the, ahead of yourself. I know. I'm getting ahead of myself. I apologize. <laughs> I'm, I apologize. Uh, so like a campaign can be up to four islands and then a boss island. So there's like a total of five if you want to go the distance. But what's so brilliant about this is like you can choose to play as much as you want. If you want to play a short campaign, all you have to do is do two islands ignore the other two and then go straight to the boss. So like if you just want to get a bite-sized experience, you can jump in with a team that you like uh, or make your own team, whatever, play two islands, roll credits and be like, and, and finish the game in like 20 minutes if you want to. Like you can do that short, bite-sized, easy to manage. It's not a big hill to get over. You can feel like you had a whole experience and feel good about yourself. Uh, but really the key and really one of the brilliant things about this game is that it's really about like the metagame where they have a whole list of achievements there are some achievements that are specific to each team of robots. So, for example, if you have the flamethrower robot team, you can be like, oh, one of your achievements is to light 12 different squares on fire at the same time. Or, you know, light five enemies on fire at the same time or something like that. Or if you've got like, uh, I don't know, one of the other teams, it's like, oh, freeze something or, you know, whatever. But then in addition to those, you have like game specific achievements where it's like, oh, uh, you know, don't don't ever die. Like complete a whole game and none of your robots die or you know, kill 10,000 bugs or, you know, whatever. Like there's a whole bunch of different achievements. So really that is what the meat of the game is about. You can roll credits in 20 minutes, but if you want to like go further or, or at least as far as you want, there are all these other achievements that give great depth to the game and also teach you the intricacies of the game. Because in order to get some of these achievements, you're going to have to really understand how the robots work, how the positioning works, like really get a very strong grasp of like everything in the game so that you can maximize your playing ability and then get all those achievements. And that to me is really the beauty of it because if you just want a quick in and out, one and done, you can do that. If you want something that's much deeper, you can do that as well. It accommodates all sorts of players. Hard is really, really hard. Easy is, is pretty easy. Um, so there's a, a wide variety of options available. It feels very welcoming and it feels very approachable and easy to pick up and play, but at the same time, there is meat on these bones if you want it, <laughs> uh, which is great. It's not easy to do that. Like, it's a very tricky thing to pull off for a developer, and I feel like this game is satisfying whether you take it for 20 minutes, whether you take it uh, for the long course. Now, so for me, I liked this game immediately. I like the way it looks. I like the design of the robots. I like the bite-sized nature. I like that it's portable on Switch. I, I got addicted to this game. I had a really hard time putting this game down. Like, it was getting to be a problem. Um, my son was even like, Dad, I think you need to stop playing this game. And I'm like, <laughs> get out of here. Isn't it bedtime? Leave me alone. <laughs> so it was a problem, but I did finish it. So for me, I did every single one of the achievements. It took me about like probably about 40 hours to do. And I got that in in like a week, which was like way unhealthy. It was way too much. I that was It was a problem. I It's been a while since I got so addicted to a game. But this one got me hook, line, and sinker. So I went through, did all the achievements, did everything possible um, that you could do, beat it with all the different teams. There's even like a secret team to unlock. Like once you get all the achievements, it'll unlock one more secret um, group of things to use, which was a real surprise to me. Uh, and a neat challenge, neat surprise. So I thought that was a nice little bonus for finishing the whole game completely. But 
I loved it, man. I thought it was great. I thought it was a masterpiece of design. Um, and in fact, I didn't even tell you like like one of the brilliant things about this. Oh, God, I'm doing a terrible job of selling CM. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I apologize to Subset Games. I am just I'm doing a shit job. Uh, so one of the other hooks to this, besides having robots and bugs, is that it's not just turn-based strategy like XCOM. And this is kind of a theme like, you know, Mario versus Rabbids. It was turn-based strategy, but you had all this mobility. In Into the Breach, it's turn-based strategy, but you can um, see the future, sort of. Uh, there's a little bit of a time travel story. It's not really important. But, but how it shakes out is that your characters are able to see, like, I don't know, five seconds into the future. And so you know what moves the enemies are going to do. And the game is totally transparent about this. It's not a trick. They're not trying to catch you. They say, hey, these bugs, this bug is going to attack this building next. This bug is going to shoot this character next. This bug is going to move here next. Totally upfront, very clear as day. There's lots of indicators, very visual. They're telling you exactly what the enemy is going to do. And it is up to you to use your robots to counter those moves. So like if you know a building is about to be attacked, you can punch that bug before it attacks and get it out of the way so that the attack misses. Or if you know this guy is going to get shot, you can move him before the shot lands. So it's very possible if you're playing well to like your, your robots will never take damage because you're always dodging out of the way. Buildings will never get hit because you're always like blocking the shot or you're moving that bug in a different direction so that their attack misses. And so it's pretty brilliant to have this kind of like five seconds in the future approach because it really gives the proceedings a very different flavor. So not only is it turn-based strategy, but it is also very chess-like and very puzzle-like where three bugs are attacking. I have three robots, but which order am I supposed to do this in to make sure that no one gets killed? Which robot goes first? Where do I need to move them? Which attack should I use? And if everything goes off without a hitch, then the bugs are stopped. Nobody gets killed. Nobody takes damage. And you have like a perfect victory. So it's very deep, very puzzle-like, very chess-like, very strategic, but it's also turn-based tactics as well. And I can't say that I have ever played I mean, I said this with Mario vs. Rabbids. I'm saying it again here. Both of these games bring something to the strategy table that has not really been done before. So although I'm a big fan of turn-based strategy and I like just the generic implementation of that, it's amazing to see these two games both have something that feels completely fresh and completely new and a brand new way of looking at this genre. So I think both of these are excellent examples of turn-based strategy that have something else to say. So... Mario vs. Rabbids, really great. I love that. And Into the Breach is guaranteed going to be, like, in my top three of the year, like, for sure. It, like, it is an outstanding game. It's designed perfectly from all aspects. It's it's easy to pick up, hard to master, good for bite-sized sessions, good for long sessions. I mean, the, the design is brilliant. There's, like, it's basically flawless. Like, I don't really have any complaints about it at all, which, if you know me, is pretty rare. So um, Into the Breach is fantastic. I loved every minute. This is the kind of game that I suspect I wish I could get into, but I also just don't think it's for me because it's like a bunch of different genres that I'm not particularly interested in. And I've also, whenever you're talking about this, I've been trying to think of other games I can think of that kind of do the same thing where it's like, like here's a set of levels and if you beat them once, it's over and done with, but like here's a bunch of different ways you can do it. And I can't really think... I know there's got to be something out there, but I can't think of anything that kind of falls into that same category. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of similar to, like, Hitman in a way where you can, mm, you know what the level yeah. is and you know what the objectives are, but you can be really stealthy or you can go in guns blazing or you can do costumes or you can do the um, uh, opportunities or you can, you know, whatever, whatever. So, like, you're doing the same thing, 
But there's like so many different ways to do it that you can really play a level five or six times and get a new experience every time. It's just like that with this game where you can play with the standard robots who are kind of just like punchy shooting, pretty straightforward, <laughs> totally clear the game with those. But then you've got like the flamethrowers where they don't do direct damage. They do damage over time. And so like the way you handle enemies is totally different. Or you have like the judo robots where like all they do is like they reposition other enemies. So they do a little bit of damage, but it's more about like if I get here, I can throw this guy here or I can turn this guy around over here. Or you've got like... Um, the guys who do smoke where they do less damage but like every time they attack somebody they cancel that attack so like you're constantly canceling so it's like way more defensive than if you were doing direct damage and you know on and on and on i mean there's like 10 there's 10 different robot teams and each one has their own hook so you could literally play this game at least 10 separate times and get a totally different tactical experience every time and that's not even counting um, you know, going the distance, going through all four islands, and then, or also making a custom team, or doing random challenges too. Like the game will also assign you a random team, and you got to do the best you can. So, I mean, you could you could like literally play this game at least twelve times in a row and get a different experience every <laughs> single time, and it would be significantly different, like significantly different. Um, I suspect, but I might be wrong on this because this is another game you're into that I'm not into. Um, does this game scratch the same itch that? Shadow Tactics Blades of the Shogun did for you when you played it on PS4? There are a lot of similarities, yeah. I mean, it's smaller scale because you're only on an 8x8 grid and Shadow Tactics had these giant levels, but, like, basically the same, yes, yeah, I think so. Like, the same concept of I have these members on my team, they are a fixed team, preset team, this is what they can do, how can I maximize those abilities, how can I get through this situation that looks impossible, what order do I need to go? Yeah, I mean, I think that's very, very true. I love Shadow Tactics. Um, and a lot of those same beats are here. I mean, in a different way, obviously. I mean, robots and bugs as opposed to ninjas. And the scale is different. But yeah, that same procedural, step-by-step, take this problem, pick it apart, figure out the right answer. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a pretty good pretty good approximation. Excellent. I have a feeling Into the Breach doesn't really need you to sell it because I've been seeing it all over the place on Twitter and stuff. But I know... Um uh, Shadow Tactics. I feel like when you talked about that on our show, like nobody really knew what it was. And I know there were people on Twitter who got into it after uh, seeing you talk about it and seeing you tweet about it and after listening to the show and stuff. So maybe if any of those people who are listening um, were into that and they're looking for kind of something similar and have a switch, <laughs> then maybe they can jump ship over uh, into the breach and maybe it'll give them the same sort of experience. It's been a very good time for strategy uh, game players like myself because, um, you know, XCOM and XCOM 2 came out, kind of got things kick-started again. Uh, then, you know, like I just mentioned, Mario vs. Rabbids, a great implementation. Shadow Tactics, which was phenomenal. I love that game so much. I'm so happy. Actually, Tangent, those guys are making a Western Tactics game, and I could not be fucking more excited. Like, the same idea. <laughs> like, like, literally, if they put out Shadow Tactics again and swapped it out for Cowboys, I would fucking play the shit out of that game. I would be so excited. So they're making a Cowboy Tactics game. I'm expecting great things from those guys. Um, Into the Breach, amazing tactics game. And actually, I'm just about to start Valkyria Chronicles 4, uh, which is, again, another iteration of turn-based strategy. Um, I haven't started it yet, but I'm going to start it after we get done with the podcast. But it is a really good time to be a tactics strategy gamer right now. There's a lot of really good offerings at the, on, the, on the market at the moment. Um, I downloaded the demo for Valkyria Chronicles on my Switch, but I have not played it yet. Oh, well, let me know what you think. I don't know if it'll be your jam, because it's definitely turn-based strategy in a faux fantasy World War II sort of a setting. But I really liked the first Valkyria Chronicles. I thought it was amazing. I had such a great time with it. 
Valkyria Chronicles 2 and 3, and I think there was one more that had a not-numbered name, were all hot garbage. They're terrible. <laughs> uh, but Sega promises this is the one where they get the magic back, so I hope that that is true. We'll see. All right. I feel like they say that every time about every game, kind of like the Sonic the Hedgehog people. But, but this is the good Sonic. <laughs> we finally figured out what you guys like about Sonic. For the 19th time, this is the good one. Trust us, really, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough of this bu- tactics bullshit. Let's get back to VR. You're talking about a game I've never heard of. I don't know anything about called Budget Cuts. Is that what it's called? That's what it's called. Budget Tell us cuts. about Budget Cuts. I would love to because this game is great. Um, so Budget Cuts is a VR game. I don't know what all uh, systems it's on, so I'm sorry. I don't think it's on PSVR, but I know it's on Vive. I'm sure it has Oculus support maybe too because most... VR games on PC have both, um, support both. And uh, Budget Cuts is a VR game about, it's got, just to like set the scene, it has very similar kind of like art style slash humor as the Portal games. So like we're already getting off on like a pretty good foot here. You play as a human character who works in an office building. It's a very like, I don't know, kind of like 1970s looking cubicles and like bright carpet and like bright walls and stuff. It looks kind of cartoony, but in like a really uh, pleasant way. I mean, you work in an office building, you're a human, and uh, all the coworkers that are in the cubes around you whenever you start are robots. And so the building is staffed by robots or part of it is staffed by robots. Um, There's very like kind of like portal-esque looking robots that are like sitting in the cubes next to you. They're having a conversation with each other. The writing is pretty funny. So you start out, you're at your desk, and then there's like a fax machine in front of you that has a phone attached to it. And, or I guess, I don't know if all fax machines have phones, but this one does. And the phone rings, you reach your hand out, you pick up the phone off the fax machine, you put it up to your head, your real head, your headset. And it's a woman who calls you and she's like, hey, I want you to know that you're in danger. The company you work for is basically phasing out all the human employees and they're employing everybody with robot. The building is being employed by robots now. I need to help you escape and I can, I can help you escape. I can help you get to the bottom of what's going on, but you have to follow my directions. And it sounds serious and like the setup of the game is kind of serious, but it's all in the, under this kind of like goofy, like silly, um, like guise of... Uh, this kind of like cartoony um, like look, which the game is very, um, it's very pleasant. It's it's kind of silly, but it's really fun. And so she's like, and as she's talking to you, she's faxing you directions on how to get out of the building. So it's kind of got a similar setup to kind of like the Matrix in a weird way where you're like in the cube doing your nine to five. Somebody calls you and says, hey, something bad's about to happen. I, I want to get you out of here. And she faxes you the directions. So you like put the phone down, you pick up the pages and... She tells you that she she put a briefcase on your desk that has a key hidden next to the uh, the flower pot that's on your desk. You pick up the key, you open the briefcase, and in the briefcase there's this like top secret um, like transporter technology gun thing that the company that you're working with has been working on, and you have to get out. You have to use it and get out of there. And so this kind of brings about the what I was talking about earlier with. Um, with VR movement is that this brings the the teleporter action into it. So this is not a game where you just stand in one place and do things and then go to the next level and stand in the same place. You actually freely move about all the environments in this game, but you have the teleporter to do so. So if you equip the teleporter gun, you aim it, 
um, you press a button and it shows you, you pull the trigger and it like launches this orb through the air, kind of like if you're throwing a grenade, like I said earlier, it lands somewhere. Whenever it lands, um, it doesn't immediately transport you there. Instead, if you hold the gun out in front of you, it shows like a window to let you see what you'll see whenever you get there. So it gives you kind of like a sneak preview of where you're going to land and what you can see if you're there, which is not always necessary because you're not always like jumping into a dangerous spot. And then you press another button to transport there. So it's kind of like blink and dishonored in a way. And you're like running around this environment by dropping these, um, these teleporter like things everywhere. And you have to, like, go down the hallway. She wants you to go to the elevator, but you go to the elevator and figure out that the elevator isn't working. So you walk, like, back across the office. And you have to, like, jump, like, out of the building. You have to, like, arc the transporter into the, like, wing of the building next door, like, through a window. And you, like, arc it, and you, like, launch the transporter, like, grenade thing. It goes, like, out the window into another window. And you like press and once you see that you're in the clear and that you're there you press the button and it like transports you over there so it's like a cool teleporter thing but this game is really incredible because it's i mean it's basically that's what the game is about so far i haven't beat it i'm only a few levels and i played it for about two hours last night but it's all like you sneaking around this office building that's staffed by robots to try to figure out what's going on and you're like keep getting phone calls from the woman at fax machine from the fax machine she gives you a pager and every time you get to a new area the pager beeps and it shows a numeric code on it and you have to find the closest fax machine and pick up the phone and dial the number to talk to her and she kind of gives you the next steps on what you need to do but the the cool thing about it is that it's not like i mean we talked about earlier when you think about vr games you think about oh it's a wave shooter or oh it's like a tech demo or it's like whatever this kind of like like really cheap like indie bullshit is but this game is like it's like an actual game i know that sounds stupid to say but it's like i mean it's an actual game in the sense that you're like walking around the environments you really have to strategize about where you're going um it has a lot in common with like hitman or dishonored where the enemies because there's enemy robots in certain levels and they have these like revolvers on their hips uh, these like i don't know robot revolvers if you will and you have to pay attention to where they are patrolling and then you have to like use the teleporter to get around them while they're um while they're doing their rounds but you also have these throwing knives and that's like the main uh, so far at least the main like offensive weapon you have so if you you can sneak up and you can like throw a throwing knife at a robot and sometimes it takes two hits depending on where you hit them to kill them um, or if they see you, you can, like, teleport down the hall and around a corner, and you can kind of, like, lead them into a trap to you, and then, like, once they turn the corner, you can, like, throw a knife in them, and then it'll, like, short-circuit them, and they'll die. And, of course, they die in hilarious fashion, because, like, oil starts, like, spurting out of the of the hole that the knife went into, and they, like, fall down, and sometimes it takes them a minute to, like, I guess, uh, they don't die because they're not alive, but, like, disengage, I guess, um... And then once they're on the ground, you can, like, literally, like, get down on the ground and, like, pull the body if you want to. Or you can, like, retrieve the knife from it. And you have to, like, because it's VR, you have to, like, reach out and do all those things. But the it's just, like, the cool thing about it is, um, is because it's like this, it's, like, really you moving around the environment and teleporting around. Like, you have to, I mean, you have to take cover a lot to, you know, keep an eye on enemy patrols. And because it's first person, that means you actually have to, like, look around. So, like... I'm literally in, like, me and my form, like, in the, the spare bedroom here, like, with the headset on. And 
I'm like in the game, like in these cubicles and I'm literally like ducking behind cubicles in real life and like popping my head up to see if, you know, where the robots are and to see where they're going. And sometimes you can uh, teleport into like ventilation shafts and stuff. And whenever you do that, you actually have to like crouch in real life. So you're like crouching on the ground like an idiot while you're in this ventilation shaft. Or sometimes you'll be in, in the ceiling and you can like look down through like a missing ceiling tile into the room. And I'm literally like, on the ground, like hesitantly, like looking around this like ceiling tile because it really looks like you're looking down a two room below you. I mean, obviously, if I tried to jump down to that room in real life, my head would just hit the floor and I'd probably pass out. But, uh, but it just looks really realistic. And like anywhere that there's like a vent or like a ceiling tile missing or some kind of like hole in the window or an open window, you can like launch a teleporter thing through that and you can like really strategize about how you want to move and you can like bounce the teleporter like uh, like bubble thing off of walls if you want to and you can like go up to other balconies and stuff and it's just like really cleverly done and it's incredibly immersive because I find myself like moving my physical body all over the place in the spare bedroom like crouching and crawling and ducking and like sometimes I'll be in an open doorway and I'll teleport there and then I'll like move my body to like peek out the door. And it's just, it's really interesting because that kind of stuff in a regular video game, it would just be like, oh, you press a button and you take cover. You press another button and you know, your character looks up or you press a button and they look around the corner or something, but it's just really uh, fun and kind of like uh, has a lot of tension if you're doing it like yourself in real life, like looking around corners and looking above the desk. And sometimes um, if an enemy, if one of the robot enemies spots you and they kind of come to hunt you, you can like, teleport under like into a cubicle and you can like crawl in real life like under a table or under a desk and you're like really like like laying on the ground like an idiot like like under this table while you're watching like the legs of the robots like patrol the conference room area while they're trying to um while they're trying to find you and they won't like look under the desks because the game's not going to give you away that fast but like there was a time last night where I, there was a little vent under a window and I like reached out and I pulled the vent cover off and I was like hesitantly looking into the room around me, in front of me. And there was like a couple of robots patrolling and one of them saw me because if you're in view, even if you're looking through the vent, like it'll see you through the vent. And it probably takes about four seconds of them seeing you before they become alert and start hunting you. So there's like a little bit of, um, of like a, like a barrier there um, or a margin of error, if you will. And so like it kept seeing me and the robot's face kept lighting up yellow and I would like duck back behind the vent every single time. And then it kept seeing me again. So at one point I was like almost lying down completely on the floor, like trying to avoid being seen by this stupid robot that was patrolling. And uh, it's just like, it's really fun and it's really well done. And this is like the kind of game where this format of game, I wish that, like this would like I kind of wish that I could just take this development company. They're called um, Neat Corporation, by the way. Neat, as in like cool. Uh, Neat. I wish I could just like clone them and have them make like ten VR games that are all in this vein because it feels really cool to be like actively exploring an environment and not just standing in one spot like a wave shooter or not just you know standing in one house and then the scene goes by and then you're standing in another place and the scene goes by. Like you're like actively moving about the environment with the teleporter. You have to be really strategic about where you place the teleporter. Um, you could be completely stealthy if you want to, or you have your throwing knives and you can like throw knives to try to kill the robots. And um, it's just like, it's really well done. And uh, the fact that it's like, like kind of hilariously written and it's really well voice acted and 
it's got this whole like kind of portal thing going on, like I've said before, where it just kind of has that like tongue and cheekiness and kind of like good character, uh, like building and character like design and stuff going on. Uh, I just like, I think this game is, uh, it's like brilliant for VR. Um, it's just really incredible. And I am really looking forward to playing more. Like it's really cool, but it's honestly, because it's in VR, it's kind of like exhausting to play. Like you have to, uh, because you're moving around so much and because you're like heightened, your senses are so heightened from having to pay attention to everything that's going on in the environment all the way around you. Um, it's kind of exhausting, but it's in a good way because I don't get that feeling from a lot of other games. But I think it's really well done, and I hope that this company goes on to make a lot more games that are very similar to this because they could do something like this, but they could make it, you know, they could do like a 50s noir spy thriller or something like that. Like that's the kind of thing that I wish that they would do next because this template that they've made is just, it works so well for VR, and I'm really impressed by what they've done. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> hmm. It sounds like a cool idea. I like the idea of, like, kind of the stealth that you're describing, especially, like, with teleporting and stuff. I like. I mean, that kind of seems like a neat idea. I would, I would be kind of into checking something like that out. But, like, listening to you talk about, like, I'm on the floor and I'm, like, ducking out. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, uh, God, like, maybe I'm, like, the la laziest, fattest dude on Earth. <laughs> but, like, I just, like, I don't, <laughs> that does not sound good to me. Like, if... <laughs> So, like, here's here's kind of my thinking, right? So, like, if I was going out to, like, um, a dedicated, you know, like, back in the in the, the, the 90s or something, there was, like, laser tag or something. I don't know if you've ever been. Have you ever been laser tagging, Corey? Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you, you, you go to some place. There's, like, smoke machine going. There's, like, obstacles. You run around and you shoot people laser tag. Like, you go, you go there to do that thing. And that's cool. And that sounds like what this would be for me. Like, I would want to go to, like, a place and strap on the VR and then crawl around and do that stuff. That sounds like fun. But like here at home, I, <laughs> number one, I don't have enough room. I, there's no way I could like set this thing up and like duck and move. Like I would have to like rearrange my entire living room, which would be annoying to me and my entire family. Um, and just like the thought of like working all day long, coming home, doing some work, doing family time. And then like when I finally get a chance to chill, like, okay, now I'm going to be running and jumping and I'm going to be ducking and I'm going to be weaving. And like, ah, it sounds like for me personally, that sounds exhausting, but it sounds like something that would be really fun if I was to like make a day of it, you know, like I, I don't know that this would work for me ever, like in a home environment. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally get that. I mean, it does kind of provide the same, like, you're thinking thrill. I'm lazy, don't you say it out loud. You well, think I'm being super lazy. <laughs> I can hear well, your voice. I mean, not necessarily. I just think that, um, that, I mean, there is like, there is a certain amount of like silly novelty that there is in the same way of like going to like a laser tag arena or something like that, or even playing like, like DDR or something like that. Like it's kind totally, of like a totally. silly novelty, but like, and I realize that I feel incredibly spoiled saying this, but you know, I have the space in my apartment. I have you know, obviously have the HTC Vive to begin with. So, like, I'm coming from a very, like, privileged umbrella of, like, being like, oh, I have a good gaming PC, I have an HTC Vive, I have enough space in the spare bedroom to be able to play this kind of game. So, like, I get it. Um, you know, I probably sound like a huge asshole, like, you know, touting about how I have all these things right now. But, I mean, covering games is what the podcast is about, so we just have to, like, step aside from that for a moment. Um, but, like, it definitely does have, like, an amount of novelty to it that's kind of silly, but... I mean, at the same time, I mean, sort of like with uh, with the Brookhaven experiment, like there's a, uh, 
there like it's just like the i i realize that this doesn't make make it okay but just like the fact that it's in vr um just makes it so much more interesting and so much more immersive and like yeah i feel silly when i'm like crawling on the ground in the spare bedroom or like ducking my real body behind these vents that don't exist that are in the video game in front of me but like I mean, this is the kind of thing where, I mean, kind of like with the Brookhaven experiment, like if this, I mean, I think if this were a game on consoles, I think it would be like a head and shoulders above the Brookhaven experiment because it's not just like a zombie shooter. I mean, I think this game would work well on consoles as like a, either a first or third person, like stealthy kind of silly corporate, um, you know, action adventure game. Um, so I definitely think it has something going for it there, but just the fact that it's in VR, and that I'm, like, running around, you know, like, spinning around my bedroom and throwing these knives. And, like, last night I accidentally punched a wall in my uh, in my apartment because I got really scared whenever a robot approached me. And I tried to throw a knife real fast at it, and I hit the wall with my hand. <laughs> oh, I'm dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> I mean, no injuries or no, like, I didn't, like, punch a hole through the wall or anything. It was slight. But, um but I don't know. It just like it elevates it to a different level, and I feel like this is what I like. Any I need to like really limit the amount of VR I talk about on the show because I feel like this is all I'm gonna say for like every VR game is like, oh, if it were a regular game, it would just be okay. But being in VR, it really elevates the platform. Like, and that's like the point. But it's just so, um, just like immersive. I mean, it's kind of the silliest but best word I can use to think because instead of just like pushing a button to crouch or holding a thumbstick to look around the corner, like you're like literally doing all those things in real life. And the fact that this game came together and such like a lighthearted, cause it would have been so easy for this game to feel like kind of like a portal kind of ripoff, or it could have been like not written well or not voice acted well, or it could have felt really low budget or really stupid, but it feels like, it just feels like a, like a good game that a lot of work went into and like all the pieces came together and it feels like a real, like immersive gaming experience rather than just like, you know, like a walking sim or a wave shooter. And I mean, I love my walking sim, so don't get me wrong, but it just feels like this is the first like game I've played on VR perhaps that, I mean, other than Super Hot, but Super Hot came before Super Hot VR. This is the first like VR game I've played that I could see existing and existing well as a console game outside of it just being VR. And I don't think that'll ever be a thing. I mean, I don't think they're planning to like port this to, you know, the Switch or whatever. But I don't know. I just like it. And it's it's well done. It has a lot of tension. It's funny. Um, it's, I don't know, immersive. That's just the word of the day today is immersive <laughs> being in VR. But I don't know. I like it. I think it's really good. And I hope that it keeps getting better as I play it and that it stays funny and it stays um, intense and that it makes me think continually about how to move about the environment and do things. Well, I will say this is one of the few VR games where it actually sounds interesting outside of being in VR. So I will give it that. Um, Keep us posted how this goes, and uh, I don't know. Maybe Switchport would be a good idea. I don't know. Don't rule it out. Don't rule it. You never know. <laughs> I mean, I think this game could be successful outside of just being VR. But I mean, I have no idea what you know they're planning on doing. But it's it's good enough to be successful as its own game outside of VR. But um, but having it in VR is even better for me right now. Right on. Right on. All right. Uh, sounds good. Sounds good. We should uh, move on and wrap it up. I'm about to die from low blood sugar because I haven't eaten breakfast yet. So we have a couple listener questions and I have a one really quick shout out to give um, just a quick heads up uh, to people who are on the switch. Tin Man Games out of Australia. I love Tin Man Games. They do a lot of iOS games and they're one of the very few iOS games that I ever find to be worth spending time on. 
love everything that Tin Man Games uh, does. They do a lot of the fighting fantasy um, kind of text adventure games. They've done a couple other games that are kind of similar. Uh, I love their work. Uh, they have an upcoming PC port of their adaptation of a fighting fantasy book. So this sounds like a long chain of events. It was a book, and then it was an <laughs> iOS game, then it was a PC game, and now it's coming to Switch. It's called Warlock of Firetop Mountain. It's probably one of the most famous fighting fantasy books. Um, and they are doing a new version. This is not the iOS version. This is um, So it was originally a book where you read the book like a choose-your-own-adventure. You make some choices, roll some dice, and play the game like that. They've kind of adapted it to be more of a 3D presentation. So it looks like you've got little 3D miniature characters, and you're inside a little like 3D model dungeon. It looks really neat. Like I think it visually it looks very cool, like you're playing with miniatures. And they take the text from the book, so you read the text, and then when you get to a battle, you actually fight the battle in a little, um, again, turn-based tactics sort of a way. Um, <laughs> seems to be the running theme for me this show. Uh, I can't... I, I will say that I'm not a big fan of the combat, because... It's one of those systems that you don't see too often where you have to kind of predict what your enemy is going to do. And unlike Into the Breach, which is hyper clear about what your enemy is going to do, this is one where you just have to kind of learn it and figure it out. And there's not a lot of visual cues about what they're going to do next. So there's a lot of like whiffing and a lot of missing, which I'm not a fan of. I don't really like the combat in this game. I wish, I wish they had done something a little bit differently. Uh, but there is a mode where you can turn the combat off and just play through the book, which is um, a lot more fun. And I think that it looks very neat. So I have, I've only played it for like maybe 10 or 15 minutes. I think it's cool. I'm going to check it out further. Uh, but I told them that I would give them a shout out, that it was coming out. It's pre-order up on the Switch eShop right now. So just a heads up, if you're one of the many Fighting Fantasy fans out there, or you are a fan of Tin Man Games, uh, this thing exists. It's coming out to the Switch soon, and the pre-order is up. And if you like the idea of playing games with miniatures, which I do, uh, it's pretty cool. So there we go. Um, Corey, we should probably get into the listener questions uh, like right now. You want to read the first one? <laughs> yes, like right now. Um, like right now. Let's do right, it. Right the second. Okay. Uh, let's not waste any time. Uh, first one, we just have a few things here. Um, the first one comes from, I don't know how to pronounce this person's name. Um, I always say Arhe7777. That's I, I just a guess. I don't know. We'll, we'll go with that. Um, who asks, um, and this I think is kind of, I don't know if this question is specific to Brad, but you've discussed it more on the show than I have, um, about why is it so hard to leave the United States as far, oh, by the way, these are not gaming related. This question is definitely not gaming related. Um, why is it so hard to leave the United States as far as like going to a different country? Because we've talked before on the show about um, the United States being awful and people wanting to leave the country uh, to go somewhere else and uh, this listener is wondering why is that such a difficult process? Yeah, RA seven seven seven. And apologies if I'm if I'm mispronouncing that. I, that's just my best guess. Um, was talking about why you know because I had talked a while ago about we had my wife and I had thought about leaving the U.S. because um, there's a lot of stuff here that we are not down with, and that was like that was pre-Trump. And now that Trump is is a thing and is happening, it's like even worse. And I just. You know, I mean, thinking about the future of my son and about life and about the world and just, you know, the environment that we want to be in. Um, I think we are taught from birth that the U.S. is the best place on Earth, and I'm not really sure that that's true. So we were thinking about moving to another country, but it is actually surprisingly difficult to leave. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but from the research that I did and talking to people that I did, it seems like there are basically three ways for you to leave, to move out of the country. I'm not talking about vacation or whatever but like if you want to like like legit like move out of the u.s and go somewhere else um from what i understand and please if anybody's listening if i if i have this wrong please write in and correct me but basically from what i understand 
Number one, you can move to another country if you have a family blood tie, and it cannot be further than a grandparent. So if you have a grandparent living in another country, you can claim family relations, and you can move there to be with your, your family in that country. But it cannot be further than a grandparent. It can't be like a third distant cousin who you met one time over Skype or something. It has to be like <laughs> a fairly close relation. Number two, um, you can marry someone in another country, and if you get married to that person, which is probably the thing you see most on TV and movies... Um, you know, you find, you know, love in France, you marry that French person, you become a French citizen. That is a legit way to leave the country. And also, I believe the third way is if you have a job that has to qualify. It's not just any job. Like, it has to be a certain type of job, and it has to clear certain requirements. And I think you have to go first on a visa, and then it eventually gets approved to be, like, a permanent position for you. Then you can become um, a citizen of that other country. So if you have blood relations, you get married to somebody, or you have a very specific kind of a job, then you can leave the country. But you cannot just, hey, I feel like I want to live in Canada and move. Like, it's impossible. Cannot happen. So, for all, I don't meet any of those requirements, by the way. I don't have a job offer anywhere. I don't have any family in another country that's close enough, and I'm already married, and she's also an American, so we're screwed there. So, basically, there's no legal way that I know of to leave the country if I wanted to leave. Um, so, all these, uh, you know, you see these redneck uh, Trumpers on TV who are like, oh, you don't love America, get the fuck out. Okay. I'd love to, but you guys won't let me leave. Like, I literally can't leave. So it's not as easy as love it or leave it. Like, if you really want to get out of the country, there are a lot more hoops to jump through. And basically, America doesn't want you to go. So that's, in a nutshell, where I'm at with that. And if anybody has any more information, I would love to hear about it. Um, I will read the next comment, since this one seems aimed a little bit at you, Corey. We got a comment from listener Omar A. Cardona. Hello, Omar. He says, long-time listener, first time writing in. Thank you very much for writing in. Also, thank you for listening. He says, listening to episode 93, and Corey mentioned a game called Archimedes. Well, I noticed I had it in my Steam library and that a sequel was released called The Basilisk. I just thought Corey might be interested. It's $1.99, and I think it would be interesting to hear what Corey would have to say since he enjoyed Archimedes. Love the show. Thank you for your comment uh, slash question, Omar. And uh, Corey, have you heard of The Basilisk? Have you tried it? Did you know about it? I did not know about it, but I was pleasantly surprised whenever Omar wrote in because I played Archimedes like, gosh, it was like a couple of years ago, and I hadn't even, um, I hadn't ever checked up on it to see if, how the developer was doing, to see if his website was still up, so I probably mistakenly said a few shows ago whenever I was talking about it that you could only get it from the developer's website, because I remember at the time, I think it was on Steam Greenlight when I played it a few years ago, but it hadn't like officially made its way to Steam and I hadn't checked up on it to see. So the good news is that it's on Steam and the even better news is that there is a sequel. I have not looked into it, but I need to because I personally, and Omar is not the only one that would be interested in knowing what I think about it. I too, indeed, would be interested in knowing what I think about it. So <laughs> I'll have to pick it up and report back. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay, uh, do you want to read the last one or should I? Um... I, well, I mean, this is more like an impressions one. I'll read it. Um, okay, go for it. Uh, this is coming from a longtime listener uh, who stumbled upon us on SoundCloud, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Psy Psychomantis. Um, uh, he watched, so a few weeks ago, we never talked about this on the show because we don't really talk about like, I don't know, about like newsy or like previewy stuff all that often, mm. but um, in case... Often. Yeah, not too often. We'd basically just talk about what we've been playing, and that's it. But a few weeks ago, um, CD, CD Projekt Red, uh, the developers of the Witcher series, um, they've been talking about uh, Cyberpunk 20-whatever-the-fuck year it is, um, their next game that's coming out. Um, 
for like years and at E3 they finally showed off like a trailer and they had like a behind closed doors um, gameplay demo for uh, for the press and stuff there. Well, a few weeks ago they released a they did like a Twitch stream um, like unveiling for the public thing of 550 not 15, but 50 minutes of gameplay video that starts pretty much at the beginning of the game where it shows like the people, it shows like the character creation screen, it shows how they create the character, and then it kind of does like some vignette missions of the game. Um, and Psycho Mantis wrote in to see if we had watched it and to see our uh, our takes on it and what we had thought about it. Um, and full disclosure, I did not watch the demo when it went live on Twitch. Um, I, I'm, see, this is kind of where, like, I'm bad at being, I mean, I wouldn't call myself, like, a video game journalist, because I'm not, but this is where I'm bad about games, because I don't, like, I'm the kind of, and I do this with movies, too, I've probably said this on the show before, whenever a game is coming out that I'm interested in, um, I want to go in knowing, like, the least that I can about it, and this kind of falls under that category, like, I hate watching um, lengthy demos or streams or anything because I would rather just play the game myself rather than watch it. So I didn't watch all of this. I kind of like skimmed some of the video on YouTube to kind of get a feel for what the game looked like and how it felt and everything. But I did not watch all 50 minutes of it because I would rather just play those 50 minutes of the game. I don't want that stuff to be like spoiled for me. Um, And that's how I feel about a lot of games. So I watched it. Um, I know, Brad, you dabbled a little bit in it, too. Do you want to talk about your impressions first or give a response? Yeah, just really quickly. Um, uh, thanks for the uh, comment, Psycho Manus, because I probably wouldn't have watched it if you hadn't said anything. So you, I had heard about it, but I didn't bother watching. So it was your comment that got me to go watch it. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I was surprised. I didn't realize it was like 50 minutes of footage. And, <laughs> you know, I love The Witcher. I know you're not um, a big fan of it, but I thought The Witcher was fucking amazing. Like, it was just a phenomenal phenomenal experience like one of the best games of all time as far as i'm concerned and i'm of course i mean loving the game that much i was 100 percent interested in what cd project red is going to do next and you know i'm a i'm a fan of of cyberpunk stuff i mean maybe not the hardest core fan but i definitely enjoy it so this is very exciting i didn't want to be too spoiled i wanted to go in pretty cold like you because um i just want to just be immersed and just take it in and just figure things out for myself so i didn't want to watch too much but i did watch the first 7.5 minutes and I say 7.5 because that was basically the first scene that they showed (laughs) so I figured one scene out of a game which is probably going to be 100 hours long is not going to be that bad so I can I can spoil myself on seven minutes of it um it looked really good graphics were amazing I mean the tone is very dark and very mature it was very graphic like surprisingly graphic they dropped a couple swear words which I was not expecting to see there was nudity of both genders right off the bat uh I mean the gunplay looked really tight and intense i mean i you know full disclosure i love the witcher and i really would like another experience similar to that like i don't want to just play that game again and i was hoping that um cyberpunk was going to be third person because i just in general like third person games better um so i was a little bit like eh, you know like i mean i i like first person games okay but they're not my preference uh but it did look pretty good i mean it looked very i mean i mean it just looked amazing like the graphics were great tone looks great i mean it, everything seems on point, so I'm excited about it. I will definitely play it, like, first thing when it comes out. Uh, and that first scene definitely was a little bit eye-opening, gave me good food for thought as to what to expect for the full version. I'm guessing I probably won't be playing it when my son is around because what I saw was a little bit surprising. 
not that it's bad, but just like, oh, okay, they're going, they're going all out on this one. There's no stops going to be held back. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I'm probably not going to watch anymore or read anymore because I do want to go in fresh. So, uh, do you want to add anything to that, Corey? Um, yeah, I mean, I skimmed the video. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I mean, really the kind of vibe I got from it was that it looks kind of a lot like if you took like Deus Ex and Syndicate and kind of, they had like a love child. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting from this game. Um, it doesn't, I, I say this, I meaning no disrespect, but I mean, the game came out of E3 as everyone's like game of show. Like everyone was like, like I saw like a few game journalists tweeting like, like, oh, you know, whenever the console cycles reach that point where you think that you've seen everything uh, uh, games can do, well, Cyberpunk is that game that kind of makes you rethink that. And, I mean, from the gameplay that I watched, I, I mean, I can't really agree with that because it just looks like, it looks like a lot of other games I've seen before. It looks like a Cyberpunk first-person shooter where you're running around, you have upgrades, you're shooting people. Um, so, I mean, and I know that looking at a game and playing a game are two entirely different things. So there's that too. That's why I prefer to play them and not watch them. But uh, something that I'm concerned about with this game, well, first of all, I'm concerned about the um, social media managers for the game because they yeah, made yeah, a really inappropriate, yeah, they made a very inappropriate transphobic um, joke, very quote unquote, to someone yes. who, yeah. So that's like really dampening my excitement for the game because if you, if that's the attitude, like I have a feeling that from that tweet alone that the culture inside CD Projekt Red is probably um, problematic, but... Um, aside from that, I mean, the game doesn't look like anything I haven't seen before. And and also, another thing that I, th I predict will be bothersome about the game is that I have a feeling that the game is going to be like, it's going to come out and be like, oh, we're, we're CD Projekt Red, and this is Cyberpunk, and it's going to be a mature adult experience. But really, all they, all they mean by that is that it's going to have like, blood and the word fuck and like titties in it a bunch, because that's what, they're, I feel like they're stuck in this like, whenever games said they were mature in, like, 1999, and really what they meant was, like, oh, there's boobs in this game once. Like, I feel like that's what this game is going to be. Like, they think they're making a mature game, but really a mature game is, like, uh, What Remains of Edith Finch. Like, that's a mature game. Like, Silent Hill 2, for all of its, like, monster whacking and shooting, like, that's a mature game. Uh, Cyberpunk, I don't think, is going to be a mature game. I think they're using that as a guise to have, like, boobs in it a lot, which I think is really just, like like a straight white man's way of thinking that they're making something mature. And like, I read a piece on, I think it was like Kotaku or something about how, um, the secondary character in the game that kind of like follows you around and is like your sidekick. He's like a Latino character and that it's like really stereotypical because he like uses Spanish words in the middle of his sentences where like Pete, like no Spanish speaker would ever actually do that. And they just do it in a really like, bad like 90s movie racist way and i feel like that's kind of like the vibe like the unfortunate vibe that this game is getting off or is giving off um i mean all that said like there's a lot of problematic elements and things that i'm predicting i won't like about this game but i'm going to play it i hope i like it i mean i like i mean deus ex is one of my favorite games of all time and it looks similar to that syndicate was kind of silly but it was an enjoyable romp and it looks similar to that i mean CD Projekt Red has a good pedigree of games. I mean, I don't like The Witcher because I'm not into, like, swords and fantasy bullshit like that, but I understand that they're, like, impeccable games. So this game is pretty well up my alley. I just wish that CD Projekt Red weren't so problematic about the way they're presenting it, maybe. 
See, or, so yes, I definitely agree about the Latino thing. I read that article and I, I, I am aware of those concerns. I mean, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt at the moment to see how that plays out. Uh, but I think that's a valid point to bring up. So we'll see how that goes in the full game. Definitely was like, oh, no, about that transphobic shit that happened on Twitter. That was really not cool. So, um, yeah, they need to they need to stamp that shit out and knock that shit off um, 100%. Like, I do not condone that stuff at all. That was not cool. Um, but on the other side, uh, I will I will counter you a little bit by saying that by playing through The Witcher 3, I thought that game was astoundingly mature in, in the in the actual... I mean, there was boobs, for sure. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of tits <laughs> in that game and blood and stuff. But the writing in that game was extremely appropriately and surprisingly mature in so many instances. So many of the quests were eye-opening in how they handled particular subject matter or how they handled characterization or how relationships happened. Um, I, I would definitely hold up Witcher 3 as one of the best examples of mature writing. And in the actual legit this is adult talking about adult things and not just blood and tits but i i totally see how you would get that sense from the trailer they definitely were like being pretty edgy for better or for worse in the trailer uh but having been through like 120 hours of the witcher 3 if they approach cyberpunk with that same manner of of really approaching it as true adult content uh, that would be pretty amazing. So I I will give them definitely the benefit of the doubt on that based on my experiences with Witcher 3. But I they do need to, like, bat in the hatches, knock off this questionable shit, like, get get with the program, folks, because, like, uh, you know, <laughs> you may make a good game, but I'm not going to be around if it's transphobic all the way through or if you have these racial stereotypes. Like, it's not going to fly. So hopefully they will get that under control and, you know, do what they need to do to fix it because... That's not acceptable. But at the same time, I am willing to give them the benefit of the doubt uh, because their past work was just pretty mind-blowing, honestly. Pretty mind-blowing. So we shall see. Oh, uh, finally, uh, the last comment from Psychomantis was, oh, and hey, thanks for recommending Bomber Crew. You're welcome. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that is a fun game. It's on hold for now, but I plan to come back to it. So uh, that's all I got, Corey. Should we wrap it up? Or you got anything else you want to add? Uh, I think I'm ready to wrap it up if you are. All right, man. Let's bring it on home, and I'm going to grab a sandwich. <laughs> All right. Well, this brings us to the end of episode 97 of the So Video Games podcast. Remember, you can stick around after the ending music to hear tonight's banter, which Brad and I both agree we think is well worth sticking around for. Um, otherwise, if you don't, uh, by all means, bail right now and come on back for episode 98 in a week. Uh, well, in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of us, uh, any thoughts, comments, feedback, games you want us to play, show ideas, whatever you want to talk to us about, unless you're being a jackass, then don't send us any of that mail. Um, you can email us at sovideogamespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also post comments for us at the Game Critics uh, site whenever the shows go live there. There is a comment section under every uh, article and every podcast that goes up on Game Critics. Um, you can also reach us on Twitter. We are a collective show on Twitter at so video games over there. Um, and last but not least, you can reach us both individually on Twitter as well. And on Instagram, we do give out our Instagram handles. Um, I mean, I don't suspect anybody would ever message either of us on Instagram about the show, but by all means, if you want to feel free, uh, Twitter is probably the best place for that. But, um, Brad, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, uh, how would they do that? You can get me on Instagram and Twitter uh, with my handle B R A D G A L L A W A Y. All A's, no O's. 
Excellent. And my handles are also, uh, it's also my first and last name, uh, Corey Motley, C-O-R-E-Y-M-O-T-L-E-Y for Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Brad, do you have anything else before we sign off? That is it. Uh, always uh, good to wrap up something like this. I'm glad we're back on schedule. And like you said earlier, we will be back on a regular recording schedule with a regular episode. So sorry to keep you guys waiting over PAX week, um, but that PAX episode should be up by the time you hear this. You probably already listened to it. <laughs> and with this one, we're back on track. So thanks for your patience. Uh, sorry for the delay. And uh, we'll do our best to keep you supplied with So Video Games. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, we're both glad to be back in the swing of things. But that brings episode 97 to a close. We'll be back next week with episode 98. We're edging ever so closer to episode 100, which we have nothing special planned for. Um, but that- <laughs> <laughs> A true so video games tradition, right? <laughs> but uh, that brings episode 97 to a close. We'll be back next week. But until then, this is bye from Corey. And bye from Brad. We'll see you next time. So I guess we're recording and we are recording. It's funny. We went like two weeks without recording and now we're doing two shows within space of like, I mean, probably technically less than 48 hours or whatever. If you <laughs> look at the clock. So we're back. We're back with an actual real episode and real banter. Uh, it's going to be back with you again, sir. Same, same to you as always. Always good to record. Oh man. We, uh, just got done watching a movie a second ago. We were gonna, we had like a like real fuck up last night. It was my fuck up, my <laughs> fuck up. Because my son is getting older and he's very curious about you know quote unquote inappropriate movies. Like we use the oh, word inappropriate geez. a lot in my house to describe things that are not appropriate for kids. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) rather than getting into it you know we will just say oh this is inappropriate that's inappropriate and he knows like you know okay just leave that alone until i'm older or whatever but he's getting older and he's very curious about certain things and it's fine to expose him to a little bit um so we've been getting a little loosey-goosey with the movies this is mostly me mostly me i'm not going to put any blame on gina she is a kind and just and decent mother i am the one who keeps fucking this up so um I, we were in the movie. We were in the mood for a movie last night, and I we you know we didn't have any one thing that we were going to watch. So I'm like, oh, you know, I heard good things about um, Three Kings. Have you ever seen that movie from like 1996 or something like that? A while ago, have you seen that? I have not. Which got George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and Ice Cube in the three lead roles. Um, I had never seen it. I didn't know. I only know the basic thing about it. I knew two things about it. I knew those guys were in it. Okay, I lied. I know three things about it. I know those th- I know those three guys are in it. I knew it was about a bunch of people at the end of the Gulf War who find, like, a map to, like, Saddam Hussein's, like, hidden gold bunker, and they were going to go loot it before they got shipped back to America. And I knew that it was a comedy. That's all I knew. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, Ice Cube has been in a lot of really goofy, funny movies, and Mark Wahlberg is not exactly the most serious actor out there. And George Clooney, you know, I know that, you know, he's got a little bit more dramatic cachet than either one of those two guys but he's also been known to get a few laughs here and there and everybody i'd ever talked to said it was really funny so i'm like oh okay well you know son's older now um he's learned about you know war and he's learned you know he's seen guns being fired and you know he's curious about the military so i'm like oh this is probably fine like you know i'm expecting something like um 
I'm going to really date myself here, excuse me, but like something like, you know, like Stripes or like Private Benjamin or something like that. Have you ever seen any of those movies? I haven't. Heard of them? I've heard of Stripes. I've not heard of the other one. Okay. So anyway, I'm a really old dude and I'm going to make really old references. So uh, people listening, if you're near your computers, Google those, you'll get what I'm saying. They're, they're comedic <laughs> military movies. Um, so I'm like, okay, yeah, let's, I've heard this is really funny. Let's, let's check it out. And we um, start watching it. And I'm like, oh, dear. Okay, this is a, mis- <laughs> this is a mistake. Stop the movie. <laughs> um, it is a comedy, and I did laugh. But I think the thing that people left out is that it is a black comedy. It is a oh. very, very dark comedy. Uh, I thought it was hilarious, and my son was laughing at inappropriate times. My wife was horrified, looking at me like, what the fuck are oh, you doing? Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, okay. We got to turn this off because I feel bad as a parent right now. I need to turn this off. Um, I I do want to watch it. But, yeah, super dark comedy. A lot of commentary about soldiers in Kuwait and Iraq, about the injustice that was going on there. A lot about racism towards people of Middle Eastern descent. There's a lot of shit about the military. There's a lot of shit about personal responsibility. It just was, like, really pitch black. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. This is... Why did nobody tell me this? Everybody made it sound like it was going to be a fun romp in the desert. It is not a fun romp in the desert. At all. I mean, there's, like, torture and shit going on. There's, like, people getting killed. And I'm like, okay, this is hardcore. So we stop. Um, I do want to watch the rest of it. I, I'm very curious about this. If anybody listening has feedback about that movie, I would love to get it. Uh, but, yeah, so heads up. Do better than I did. And usually, I feel kind of bad because usually <laughs> I do my, my due diligence when, before we watch a movie like that. But I figured, oh, I've heard nothing but good things. And he's a little bit older. We can probably be a little bit more risque, but that was like sailing far over the line. That was a dad fail of epic proportions last night. So, um, instead we quickly stopped that movie and we pivoted towards RIPD. Have you ever seen that? Is that the one with, um, don't say his name. Don't say it. Um, the dude from, you're thinking it, you're thinking I'm it, thinking it, the dude from Tron legacy. I know that's not what he's known for. Um, the, <laughs> that's the hilarious bit. that you picked that as the, the thing. That he, Cause that. I haven't seen him in like anything else. He's the big Lebowski is the movie that he's like known for. Yeah. Jeff Bridges, um, Jeff Bridges. Thank Jeff you. Bridges, yeah. Yes. yes. Jeff Bridges. And also, uh, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds is also in that. Um, so I, I had heard of this movie. I heard it flopped when it came out. And that people said it was no good, but we were, you know, we wanted something lighter after watching 20 minutes of uh, Three Kings. And so we're like, we got to get something goofy and funny that's more family appropriate. Uh, And this fit the bill. It's got, like you said, uh, The Big Lebowski and it's got Deadpool, both of them teaming up together (laughs) as policemen who are dead and they continue to be policemen in the afterlife. It has a very strong men in black vibe to it where it's like the two guys are kind of wisecracking and then there's a bunch of weird looking dead guys which are not quite zombies but they're kind of sort of monsters sort of and they kind of look goopy and weird so definitely like um biting down on the men in black vibe um quite a bit but i mean it was funny it was light i thought it was a good romp for like 90 minutes i mean it's pretty much you know car chases people shooting guns but nobody really getting hurt a couple weird monsters and uh pretty you know it's, it's exactly like what you would expect it to be if you've seen any of the men in black films it's totally like that uh but it was fine i didn't think it was bad I, th- I didn't think it was bad at all i thought it was entertaining but i can easily see where if you had just seen like you know men in black three and that was not the greatest film if i recall correctly or if you just were tired of that formula this seems literally like just a pretty pretty blatant copycat so i can see why it didn't do so good at the at the theaters following uh in those footsteps but i mean now that we've got a few years out from men in black and that's not really a thing anymore and we were just kind of kicking it and uh just wanted something fun to watch it was it was pretty good 
it was fun. So it kind of helped erase some of the uh, trauma that we had just been through uh, with the earlier movie. But uh, not too bad. Not too bad. That's been kind of my my night. What have you been up to? Um, did you know that they're rebooting Men in Black? They are? Yeah, they're making a new one with... And the two leads are going to be um, Chris, the Thor Chris. I can't remember his last name. Hemsworth? Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson, who is Valkyrie, and she was Valkyrie and Thor Ragnarok. Is that right? She was, yeah, she was. So they're gonna they're reteaming Thor and Valkyrie in a totally new context. Yeah, they're rebooting, um, yeah, Men in Black completely with those two in the lead, which I have high hopes for because I really liked. I mean, I've only seen the first Men in Black because I heard the second and third one sucked ass, but I really like the first one. It's like the perfect silly popcorn movie but it's like incredibly well acted at the same time like vincent d'onofrio as eggert and as like the main alien he's like perfect in the role it's just good it's good good movie yeah i literally just watched it like three weeks ago because my son um found it on netflix or something like that and so i'm like oh yeah this is a good movie so uh, yeah it, it still holds up it is still really good i i remember uh, now that i'm thinking about it, i can't remember if two was the worst one or three was the worst one i remember they were not great but i thought one was definitely less bad than the other maybe i'm getting it mixed up but <laughs> anyway that would be interesting although weird that they're rebooting it now i mean it, they don't really seem like they're that old i mean they're i mean what, from 10 15 years ago or something i mean it doesn't seem i don't know like it still holds up you know like whenever i think of movies getting rebooted i kind of think of something where it was like it was so old that the special effects were terrible or it was so old that everybody in the movie was white and like neither one of those things, <laughs> neither one of those things apply to Men in Black. I mean, I just saw it. The special effects still look good, and Will Smith is in it. He was in the lead role, black guy, well-known black guy. I mean, I don't know. That's kind of weird that they're rebooting that. Interesting. Um, speaking of, speaking of, um, I guess since you brought up Thor and Tessa and Chris Hemsworth, uh, and all that, you know, I was actually. Have you been following this whole Guardians of the Galaxy thing? I know you're not the biggest Marvel fan, but it's been a little bit of a story on Twitter and stuff. Have you been following that? Uh, if you're talking about, um, like parts of the cast not being pleased about James Gunn being fired and, uh, God, I'm like not, you can tell, I just, I literally woke up like 45 minutes ago and you can tell because I can't remember anybody's names right now. The dude who was like the wrestler who plays um, Drax in the movie. Um, I mean, I've heard that he's like taking a pretty hard stance on like pulling out of the movie if James Gunn isn't rehired, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I haven't been super duper keeping up with it so what is there other dramatic stuff happening well i mean that was kind of it but i wanted to discuss one kind of aspect of it that i was talking about with my wife um and my wife is is brilliant by the way i love bouncing stuff off of her she's so smart and always has such good perspective on things and she is also um very liberal like i am too so we get along really well and it's it's great to have somebody to bounce stuff off of but we were kind of talking about so this thing i mean for people that don't know the the director of guardians of the galaxy james gunn i i was not familiar with him i didn't know anything about him but apparently like 10 years ago he was like a shock jock or something or he was he was he had some kind of job where he was trying to get like really reactions out of people and he went on Twitter and said, like, a bunch of really, like, gross stuff. I went back and um, saw some of the tweets when it came out. Um, and, yeah, it was, like, really inappropriate, really distasteful stuff. But, I mean, at the at the time, that's what he was going for. And I don't know why he was doing it. But whatever. Something. So whatever. Failed media experiment or who knows what. Anyway. Um, some assholes from Gamergate wanted to get him in trouble. Um, so they dug up this stuff from 10 years ago and posted it and reported him to whatever the movie studio is and said, Oh, we don't want this guy 
working. But I mean, it was kind of a bogus thing because it's gamer gators who were doing it, who are scum of the earth. So it's like they were kind of just like throwing anybody under the bus that they could, right? So, so anyway, I think it's Warner Brothers. Maybe I can't remember what what studio it is. Anyway, so they're like, oh, 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 this is terrible. So James Gunn, you're fired. And then people are like, well, wait a minute. Number one, these are gamer gators who are throwing him under the bus. Number two, you already knew about this when you hired him and you said it was no big deal. And number three, um, he has gone... So, like, so the thing that I really want to discuss, though, is that he's gone on record as saying, hey, I, I was really fucked up and that was shitty of me to say that stuff. I don't believe that anymore or that was just a thing that I was doing. Like, nobody actually got hurt. Like, there was no, like, abuse of women. There was no abuse of children. Like, it was all just talk, you know? And he's like, I realize how awful that is now, and I regret it, and I've changed, and I've improved myself, and I don't do that anymore. And, like, you know, everybody on the cast of Guardians of the Galaxy signed this, like, long letter saying, hey, he's a good guy. He's made up for the error of his ways in the past, and he's not like that, so don't hold that against him. But then, you know, I mean, the whole thing got really confused because some people really thought what he said was reprehensible, and some people wanted him off no matter what because that was unforgivable. But then other people are like, well, look, you know, Nobody actually got hurt. It was just him talking and being an asshole. Granted. And he grants that. Like, he admits it. He says, I was an asshole and I was wrong. But the thing that I'm, I'm curious about is, like, when is it okay to be sorry and move on? Because I think we've kind of gotten into this culture um, where if somebody ever commits a sin of some sort, like, they just, they never get past it. Like, you know, so, th- I mean, like, it's is it not okay that he said he was sorry, that nobody actually got hurt, that he regrets the error of his ways, and apparently from everybody who's involved says he's a totally changed man, and we can't, like, recognize that? Like, I'm not excusing what he did, because I think it was shitty, but, like, it's got to be okay at some point to say sorry and to improve yourself and change the, your ways, because if if you are never forgiven for something that you do, then what incentive do you ever have to ever change? You know what I'm saying? Right, 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 right. So I don't know. I just was thinking about this and I just feel like this, there's, there's gotta be a point at which, I mean, as long as the crime is not too serious. I mean, I mean, if you kill somebody in a, you know, drunken rage, I mean, I think that's probably something that's pretty hard to forgive, but if you just shoot your mouth off and you're being a jerk and then later on you realize you're being a jerk and then you stop being a jerk and you're not a jerk. I mean, you've, that's gotta be okay. Otherwise, like why, why would anybody ever stop? You know? So I, I don't know. I feel kind of sad that this guy, you know, again, not excusing what he's done, but I mean, clearly everybody in his circle is sticking up for this guy and everybody's saying that he's an okay guy. So I just, it, I, I wish that we were a little bit more forgiving uh, in that way. Like if somebody who has genuinely changed their stripes really can be rewarded for that instead of punished eternally, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know every single aspect about this. I just, I just, it's just kind of sucks that um this is still going on and that, and now, I mean, apparently like the guy that plays Drax Chris Batista, is that his name? Dave. Dave Batista. Batista. There you go. I knew I knew part of it. I mean, apparently, like at the moment, it's looking like he's not coming back. So I don't know. They've like anybody in the Marvel universe, there's only been one person. No, oh, wait, 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 that's not true. No, not true. There's only been two people that have ever been replaced in the Marvel universe, and both times it's been pretty weird. So I would prefer that he not be switched out because he's just established that character and stuff, but I don't know. I mean, props to him for taking a stand. I mean, he really feels strongly about it, and it's rare you see anybody take a stand on anything these days. But uh, I don't know. We'll see how it plays out, I guess. Yeah, I think the thing that fascinates me about it is, um, and this is kind of nerdy of me, but I'm just wondering about, like, contractual obligations and stuff. Because obviously I'm sure Dave Batista signed a contract that says, you know, you have to star in, you know, 15 Marvel films or whatever. And I'm wondering what's going to happen if... I mean, I'm sure he's, like, a multimillionaire and can afford, you know, whatever, you know, to get out of whatever contract he wants. But 
I'm just wondering, like, if the contract is like, oh, if you fail to appear in this movie, are, you have to pay because it's Disney that's the ones that are behind the whole thing because Marvel's owned by Disney. That's true. Now. That's true. Um, that's true. Good point. So if they're going to be like, oh, you were pulling out of this movie, now you have to pay us, I don't know, like $50 million or something, as if, you know, Disney doesn't have more money than God himself or herself. So it's just like, I don't know. It's just silly how kind of, you know, contractual obligations at the end of the day all come down to like ridiculous sums of money with people who are already like super duper rich anyway. So I don't know. I mean, I I feel like, I mean, for on one hand, I'm not really a big fan of Guardians of the Galaxy, like period. So I'm kind of like removed from the from like the oh, like I feel so bad for him because but I do feel bad for him. And I feel like, you know, firing him outright was the wrong thing to do because I mean I don't know it's one of those things like and we've talked about this on the show before but it's one of those things where like whenever you try to become more aware of like who you're supporting financially and who you're buying from and this goes for like businesses too and not just like individual people that like if you dig deep enough you're probably going to find out that they've done some like awful shit before seriously seriously yeah I mean it's just like there's there's no one out there who has like only done like 100% good things their entire lives like you're going to find so you're going to find, especially with people who are famous, who have a lot of money, who, you know, have been working that long, like you're probably going to find something that they've done that's terrible. And like anybody who probably looks great in the public eye, that info just has been hidden thus far. You know, it's kind of one of those situations. So um, I don't know. It's like I I feel bad that he got fired and I feel like they probably should have maybe done something else, like some other sort of consultation, like maybe... I don't know, they let him direct, but they only paid him half as much as the last movie or something like that, which is shitty, like, on a, on moral grounds that he got fired. But at the same time, like, I find myself sometimes tired of these, like, situations that involve, like, all of these, like, incredibly rich people. Because I just want to be like, oh, boo-hoo, like, you can afford to probably take the rest of your life off and never work again and live happily ever after with all the money you have from the first, like, two movies that you made for Marvel, because I'm sure he got paid a shitload of money to do that. Right, totally. So, I don't know. I, I feel, and I feel like a, like a cynical jerk saying that, but there's just, like, I'm so far removed from people who are, like, rich that I kind of, like, don't... It's kind of like sports players. Like, whenever you hear about, like, oh, well, Kobe Bryant got signed to X team, and, and they, got, they paid him $200 million, and I'm like, who, like, what, <laughs> like... Who, what, like, how, how, how does anybody even, like, what do you do with that amount of money? Like, we have, I, this sounds so, I feel so stupid saying this, but it's like, you know, we have, like, thousands and thousands and thousands of people who can't afford, like, to go to the doctor, and yet one basketball player is getting paid, like, all this money. I realize I'm spinning this into the stupidest scenarios I possibly can, but it's just how, like, far removed I am from rich people that I sometimes just, like, don't care about their problems because they have a lot of money and they can do whatever they want. But I do think that he shouldn't have been fired. I feel like Disney should have thought that one through a little bit more. But uh, ultimately, I'll be fascinated to see what actually happens with the next movie. Like, what... Because, I mean, like, Marvel, it's not just, like, an individual movie. I mean, anything they do with any movie is going to tie into all the other movies that they have running at this point. Totally, so, totally. I mean, it'll be interesting to see who they get to direct it, how the cast responds to the director, how the writers respond to the director, if any of the other cast members pull out. Because, I mean, like, I mean, it's not like Chris Evans. Well, I guess Chris Evans isn't in Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, like, Chris, uh, God damn it, why are there so many Chris's in the Marvel Universe? <laughs> Um, the other one, the Parks and Rec Chris, uh, 
Yeah, I know. I mean, it's about it's not like he can like pull out because he's in. He's like the fucking star of the whole thing. Yeah, he's yeah. like the star of the show, and he's in the all the Avengers movies. I mean, I guess the other ones are in the Avengers movies too, but I don't know. It's just weird, like. But it is. I I am incredibly happy that uh, Dave Batista is like taking a stand on this because he it's it is incredibly rare to see people like this who are like have a lot of money who kind of like don't have to care about other people's problems like suddenly care about them and really like put their career on the line to be like hey this is a dumb thing you did and I'm not going to participate anymore so it is kind of rare and incredible for what he's doing I guess yeah yeah you don't see that very often um so that was uh, uh, yeah like you said a very unusual stance for someone to take where he could have very easily been like whatever I'm gonna get my check and it's been nice work with you see you later and uh to see somebody who, you know, who's he, I mean, he, I don't know the guy, of course, but it just seems from like <laughs> stories that he's given and interviews that he just is like, you know, standing up for what he thinks is right. And of course he's, you know, he's, he's not going to have the same penalties as other people. Cause you know, he's got enough money to cushion himself forever if he never makes another movie again, but still it's, it's nice to see somebody doing something like that. But uh, anyway, um, you have seen a movie yourself recently, haven't you? I have, I can bring for the first time in still video games history, I'm moving to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, buddy. Tell me all about it because I saw the poster for this and I saw a trailer and I was like, huh, okay. Uh, and then you saw it before I even could even consider seeing it. So give me the lowdown, man. What is the deal? Okay, so I saw the movie Peppermint, which released uh, on Friday um, at the day of recording. This is like two days ago. And this is sort of like Jennifer Garner, who made her career, by the way, and I feel, like, I feel like people forget this because she's been playing, like, like dainty mom roles for the past, like, you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Um, her career was made off of the TV show Alias, which J.J. Abrams produced, where she was, like, an action star, spy, thriller, like, it was, like, that kind of thing. And I never watched Alias, so I wasn't, like, into that. But she, like, made her career as that. She was also Elektra after the Daredevil movie. And, I mean, I haven't seen Elektra either. And say what you will, I've only heard terrible things about the movie. But, like, she kind of was, like, one of the first female headlining superhero movies. Like, I mean, we make a big deal about Wonder Woman and about the Wasp being an Ant-Man and about, like, Black Widow's movie coming up and stuff. But, like... I mean, Jennifer Garner kind of beat him to the punch, like, a decade ago, but her, I mean, yeah, maybe the movie was terrible, but, I mean, she kind of did it first. Maybe, I mean, didn't do it first, because I'm sure there were, there were women in uh, superhero movies before that, but to, like, really headline it. But anyway, anyway, um, the, uh, Peppermint is her getting back to uh, action franchises, because she hasn't really been doing that in a long time. And it's uh, directed by the guy who directed Taken, which kind of set Liam Neeson's, like, unexpected action career on fire, like, a while back. Because he did Taken, and then I think there were two other Takens. Then he did, like, three movies that were, like, almost exactly like Taken, but with a different director. So um, I would love it if Jennifer Garner just kept doing one action movie after another. But, I mean, you know how I am. I love any movie where it's, like, all right, we're going to have a chick kicking a bunch of dudes' asses. So I was kind of all in for it. And uh, although I wasn't expecting it to be great, but let me set the premise for it. So Peppermint stars Jennifer Garner as a woman named Riley North. She is a uh, middle-aged woman working at a bank. She has a husband. She has a daughter who's about 10 or 12 or so. And uh, she's kind of like they kind of set the movie up as like, you know, she's working at a bank. The dad's like a mechanic. They're kind of like scraping to get by. Um, 
her daughter is trying to be like in this Girl Scouts troop, but she's not really fitting in with the rest of the kids. And there's another Girl Scout mom that's kind of a bitch in the group. And, um, and so the dad, as you do in movies where you're scraping to get by, the dad makes this deal with one of his mechanic friends to try to like rob this drug dealer, this like kingpin guy who's in the oh, city. Jesus. I know. That sounds I know. like a bad choice. Yeah, well, the good news is that he doesn't do it. Like, he calls him the night of. He calls his friend, and he's like, hey, never mind. This is too risky. I don't want to do it. Um, you know, thank you, but no thanks. Well, by the time he pulls out of it, the word has already gotten back to the kingpin that they were planning on doing this thing. So to set an example, the kingpin guy sends his gang dudes out to murder basically everybody that was involved. So um, in a true, like, cheesy character development de- tearjerker moment, um, which, I mean, I, it wasn't tearjerkery really, but um, the family is out at this, like, Christmas parade thing in California. And I think the movie takes place in L.A. And, and, uh, and the gang dudes roll up. They, you know, do a drive-by shooting. They murder the husband. They murder the daughter. They shoot Riley, but she doesn't die. She's, like, in hospitalized for a while. She gets out of prison. The prison system or the court system basically fails her, um, fails to convict the dudes who shot the husband and the daughter. And so in Batman fashion, Jennifer Garner goes, uh, she like goes off the grid for like five years and basically trains to be like this badass bitch and comes back to LA. And on the five year anniversary of her family getting killed, she basically like tries to take down the entire gang operation on her own. So it's like classic revenge tale, family, mom rage, murder movie, where she's basically just like shooting a bunch of dudes. And I kind of went into it expecting it to be like really terrible. I mean, maybe like enjoyable, terrible. But to be honest, it was actually like, it was like good enough. I mean, it wasn't great. It wasn't amazing. Uh, Like Atomic Blonde is still my gold standard for like women kicking ass like action movies because that movie has like incredible fight choreography um and like peppermint kind of suffers i'm this is going to be a really unpopular opinion that people are not going to be thrilled with when i say this but um peppermint kind of suffers some of the same problems that the john wick movies do and that a lot of the movie is just about her pointing guns at people and shooting them. And it's not like about fight choreography and like hand to hand kicking ass. Cause that's the kind of stuff that I like is watching like excellent fight choreography. And that's why the John Wick movies are really boring to me. Cause the whole movie is just Keanu Reeves pointing guns at people and shooting them and like neon pink lighting. And I don't think that's interesting. Well, you know, I'm Um, not a John Wick fan, so please feel free to to disparage it all you want. (laughs) I think those movies are boring as shit. So yeah, I mean, we've talked about it on the show before, so I don't want to talk too much, but I do. I think the John Wick movies are boring. I think they're incredibly overrated. Um, I think that watching people shoot other people in a not super stylish way is really boring. Um, So, uh, but I like, Peppermint because, I mean, first of all, because there's a woman in the lead um, instead of just another white dude. And the movie has its fair share of problems. I mean, it's paced a little strangely. Um, It has a lot of shooting and not enough hand-to-hand combat. Uh, It has, I mean, the premise is, like, super ridiculous just to start with. Um, And, of course, like, because it's a, you know, like a gang or whatever, like a drug cartel, like, everybody she shoots is, like, a Mexican guy. So it's, like, basically, like, a white woman against, like, all brown people with face tattoos. So it's kind of, like, it's kind of sketchy in those areas. But overall, I mean, I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. Um, I mean, it's not, I'm not, like, you know, urging people to rush out and see it because it's going to change your life. But if you're looking for, like, an hour and 45 minutes of Jennifer Garner, like, back in action shape with, like, the most 
like toned glistening arms I've like ever seen on a woman um, like covered in like soot and sweat with like automatic rifles in her hands then I mean it's it's I think it's worth your time maybe not like you know rush out and see it now but if you're looking for light action fare I mean there's definitely some good stuff in here but it's not it's not amazing I mean Atomic Blonde like I said is still my favorite like chick kicking ass movie and then probably Wonder Woman after that and then maybe like Kill Bill after that um but I mean it's good it's good enough I was I was happy with it but I wasn't like ecstatic yeah, it sounds like it's in a wheelhouse. I mean, I you know I don't think it's something that we would have gone to the theater to see, but I'm sure that like you know on a Saturday night, if the kids in bed and we're kind of kicking it, I'm sure it would be the kind of thing that we would rent. So I'm sure that we will see it um, at some point in the future. Um, so just kind of circling back on something that you mentioned just really briefly, like you said, an hour and forty five minutes of uh, of movie. I gotta say, dude, like I'm kind of getting tired of movies being like more than ninety minutes. Like I, I think some <laughs> movies are fine. But like sometimes I like we we go to rent a movie and I'm like oh god it's like two hours it's like a long time like I just uh, I mean some movies are great and I want more and that's fine but a lot of them I'm like I'm totally fine with a tight ninety minutes and then like for something like this where it's like you know oh yeah basic premise shooting some dudes chase chase in a car and then roll credits I mean like ninety minutes is fine for that and like I just I just I don't think two hours needs to be the standard anymore some films fine some films not fine and I just. I, I want more 90-minute movies. You feel me on this one? I, I'm i half and half with you on this one because I agree that it seems like, especially in the past, like, five years, the length of movies has been getting more and more ridiculous. Because, like, you know, 90 minutes used to be pretty much, like, the standard for movies. And then somewhere down the line, about two hours became the standard for movies. And then there were, like, a few huge blockbusters that were, like, two like hours and hours, 20 yeah, minutes. Totally. And then it's just, like, the line keeps getting bigger and bigger. Like, I think... Um, what was it like uh james bond skyfall was like two hours and 30 minutes or something and then like blade runner 2049 although i love i love 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 blade runner 2049 i would not cut a second from that movie if i could um that movie's like two hours and 40 minutes or something like that and so it's like every like every director is just like hmm, let me just push this needle a little bit further into the length zone and there's a lot to be said for a director who can you know, get a movie, get everything they want to do in there and still have it be like under two hours. I think that's a respectable thing to do. It kind of harkens back to editing, which is, as you might imagine, is something that's constantly on my mind. Um, not to disparage anybody at Game Critics, because we have a great writing team and we have wonderful people and a great staff. But Oh, also, I'm a oh, huge no. overwriter. I'm a big <laughs> overwriter. So anything you say, you're not going to offend me because I'm like priority one for this. Probably. Totally. And this, <laughs> this is not like, you know, subtweeting at you or anything. Like, I'm just saying <laughs> in general, I find that people in general err on the side of giving way too much rather than not enough. And I think it's a real skill. Um, not just only in, in reviewing, but also in movie making, to be able to make your point, to make it, you know, substantial enough, and then to not take up, like, three hours to do it, or, like, in the case of review, not to take 2,000 fucking words to do it, because, <laughs> you know, like, I can, I very frequently will get a review that's, like, 1,500 words, and by the time I'm done editing, it's, like, 900 words, and I feel like it's a better piece, like, it reads better, flows better, gets to the point better, like, less fat. And I feel the same thing about film. Like, I feel, I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's great. Like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Marvel f film junkie. You know that I'm open about that. And so like when the next infinity gauntlet movie comes out, like I'm fine with that being two and a half hours. Like, I mean, yes, I love every minute of this. I love seeing superheroes. It's great. 
But it, but for other movies where I just don't want to devote that time, and I think that people are getting lazy about it. Like there's just too much, too much fat in movies lately. I wish they would trim down. So that's my little mini rant right there. But um, <laughs> anyway, I'm looking at the list of banter topics. There's one thing. There's one more thing that I definitely want to talk about. Um, but before we get to that, you you have something down here about a Metal Gear podcast. What's that all about? Um, I do. I just wanted to give a really really big shout out to. Um, the magazine slash website slash gaming media outlet Game Informer. Um, I don't, I read, I follow a lot of Game Informer editors on Twitter. I follow a lot of, the weird thing about Twitter for me is like, I follow a lot of editors and writers for a lot of video game sites on Twitter, but I, I rarely actually go to the websites and read the stuff they publish. Um, reads anything I don't know if these that's, days, seriously. Yeah, I don't know if that's good or bad, but. I saw um, Game Informer, and I used to sub- I, every once in a while I resubscribe to Game Informer, and then my subscription runs out, and then I go two years without it, and then I resubscribe, and then it's just like a cycle over and over again. But um, I saw someone I can't remember who it was, and I feel bad for this, but one of the editors at Game Informer um, posted on Twitter about uh, this uh, month or last month or something was Metal Gear Solid on PlayStation One. It was the twentieth anniversary of the oh, game. Oh yeah, I saw that. I saw that. And so Game Informer, they have a podcast, as does every gaming site ever. Um, and I, I've never listened to the Game Informer podcast before, so I don't know if this is like... I read that this show was out of the ordinary for what they usually do. Um, but they put out a podcast commemorating the 20th anniversary of Metal Gear Solid coming out. And the really incredible thing about the podcast is that in this one, they interviewed a bunch of voice actors and voice directors from the original series. And I mean, a lot of them made several repeats in the series. Um, And they talked about, um, and well, I'll get to why it was incredible in a second, but they talked about, I mean, they had David Hayter on who played Solid Snake. They had, um, the guy who voices Otacon, they had Debbie Mae West who voices Meryl, they had the guy who voiced Vulcan Raven, they had Cam Clark who voiced Liquid Snake, um, they had, I think there were like two other voice actors on there that they, um, they basically, I don't think they had anybody like in the room with them, so they made like phone calls and Skype calls to them and kind of like asked them all the same interview questions. But the incredible thing about the show is that from a podcast editing perspective, I cannot imagine how much work they put into the show, having to call all these individual people and doing these interviews with them and recording them. And then, and you can tell in the show that it's like stitched together, but it's also stitched together so well and so fluidly that to like the untrained podcaster, you might think that maybe they had done like a big conference call or something. Cause they'll ask like, one of the hosts will ask somebody a question. That person will talk about it for a second. And then they'll have like, someone else that they interviewed kind of say something else about it but like you know that they weren't all interviewed at the same time so it's like it's like an editing masterpiece and i keep meaning to write into game informer or or send the guy who produced it a dm and be like hey you know one podcaster to another like this was an editing like a master class in audio editing but so that was incredible for me but it's also incredible just to hear all the voice actors talk about the process of recording because they have a lot of really interesting stories about how um, whatever they recorded the first Metal Gear Solid game, because it was back in 98, they were probably maybe recording it in 97, um, about how they all, all the voice actors for the game, they all went to the recording studio, quote unquote, that they had for it was basically this like home studio in this like random house in Hollywood. Like they weren't even in like uh, a development building or a publisher building. Like they weren't at Konami or in Japan or anything. They were just at this like random house that, I guess Konami had rented to use as a studio, but it was just like a house house. Like they're talking about how 
they were in the studio and then they would just like go sit in the kitchen and get their sandwich out of the fridge and eat it on their lunch break or whatnot. But the cool thing is that all the actors were there at the same time in the studio. So they all got to record together, which is incredibly rare in, in video games because usually whenever they do voiceover recording in video games, it's just one person alone in the booth and you don't have people to play off of. But they were talking about how they were all just in this like dingy house um, in the middle of Hollywood and they were all recording in the studio together and they said that like the house was on a well-populated street. So like trash trucks and like motorcycles would go by and they would literally have to like do retakes like over and over and over again because the microphones would pick up the cars that were going by outside and then they talked about recording because they all re-recorded everything for the Twin Snakes, which was the GameCube um, remake of Metal Gear Solid. And they got like most of the original cast back together to re-record everything. And they talked a little bit about that. And then at the very end of the show, they talked to David Hayter about uh, being replaced in Metal Gear Solid Five in the Phantom Pain. And, um, and he has some like pretty interesting things to say about like his working relationship with Konami and and like how Hideo Kojima treated the franchise the whole time they were doing it and like I don't want to spoil a whole lot because I encourage everybody who's listening to this to go listen to that podcast because it's incredible but a couple of the really interesting things that he said were um to me were that he uh David Hayter and uh Hideo Kojima they never really like met in real life or they didn't have like a bit like a working relationship together and apparently, um, Hideo Kojima tried to get David Hayter replaced as the American voice actor of Snake, like for every single game for the entire career. <laughs> Seriously? Oh my god! He's yeah, like, he's like Mr. Solid Snake. Why would you ever want to replace him? That's ridiculous. Well, David said on the podcast that he suspected, but of course it can't be proven true or false that um, Hideo Kojima was not pleased with the amount of like outpouring of like fan love and attention that David was getting for the role because of course Hideo Kojima is just like every other fucking CEO millionaire who wants all the attention on him um I guess he was like not or he was like upset that the fans were like really clinging to David Hayter and were like really celebrating him in the role and so David said that for like three or four games in the franchise, he had to re-audition to play Snake over oh and over God. again. Give me a and fucking break. Yeah, dude. and get this. And of course, this will come as a surprise to no one who has been paying attention to anything related to Kojima or Konami, that every step along the way for every new game, Hideo Kojima tried to get big Hollywood stars to replace David Hayter oh as the that voice of Snake. That does not surprise me at all. Oh, yeah, it awful. doesn't surprise me yes. at all. And it's like, like everything that I used to respect about Hideo Kojima, basically in that like one monologue from David Hayter on the podcast, I was like, yeah, Hideo Kojima <laughs> sounds like a big fucking asshole and I don't really respect him a whole lot anymore. Like he's just like, he's such a star fucker and it's so fucking annoying. I was going to say star fucker. Like, I was literally going to say that dude. Yeah, just now. <laughs> it's just like, I wish that Hideo Kojima would just get off of every Hollywood stars boner and just like go work on games instead of trying to like, act like he's part of like the big boy Hollywood club. It's so fucking annoying and it's so obvious. And it really annoys me that they assembled such a great cast for the game and that Hideo Kojima, like not even in America, like not even in the recording studio, like not even working directly with them was basically like fighting them every step of the way on who was getting cast and wanted to like replace them with Hollywood actors. Like give me a fucking break. Wow. I mean, I was already 
not the biggest fan of Hideo Kojima. Um, just like from a content perspective, because I have a very dim view of some of his work. Um, but that just is even worse. That's just like right. that's just that's just pouring shit sauce on top of the shit burger, man. Because I just yeah, I, I mean it's pretty clear he wants to be a director of Hollywood films. He you know like you said he's just going from dick to dick in Hollywood, and it's like you gotta just yeah, it's just it's 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 it's, it's a bit much. And hearing that is awful. Um, so I just. Yeah, uh, I think it's safe to say that I'm not his biggest fan. I admire some of his work. I mean, I think he, he has made some solid games with assistance, and I think he's got some good ideas when it comes to certain things. Would you say he's made some liquid games, too? Uh, ouch, <laughs> ouch, ouch. Well, you said he made some solid games. Uh, Did he yeah, also make I, some, some Solidus games, uh, Solidus, Solidus, maybe. <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Corey Motley in fine form, folks. Uh, yeah, so that's just as gross. So anyway, thank you for sharing that. I, I, maybe I'll have to go and record. I do listen to a lot of podcasts. Maybe I can go. How long was that podcast? Was it like six hours or what? No, it was, hold on. I have it pulled up on my phone right now. Um, it's actually not that long. It's only an hour and nine minutes. Wow. Really? Yeah. And it's got a lot of, re- like, they don't fuck around on the show. Like the, the, the thing that I love about the show too, is that the hosts, I can't, let me see if it says who hosted it. Um, Ben Hansen hosted it and Tim Turry, who used to work for Game Informer, who now works for Capcom, I believe, doing like Resident Evil stuff. Yeah, they yeah, had, yeah. They had Tim come back on the show for it. But the thing that I love even more about the show is that they barely even talk in the show. Like they, they ask questions, but they don't like grandstand about being the hosts or about blah, blah, blah. We're from Game Informer. They basically are just like, here's a question. And then they let the person talk, which is like my favorite thing about this episode. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I should listen to more Game Informer podcasts because maybe they're good. But I highly recommend this. And it's only an hour and nine minutes long. And it's packed it with really um, kind of fascinating information. Wow. Okay. So maybe I'll check that out because I was expecting you to tell me this was like a nine part series that was like 42 hours. <laughs> I mean, I kind of wish it were, but it's wow. not. But if it's only an hour, I could easily, I mean, shit, I listen to more podcasts than that in a day. And that seems pretty interesting. Although I'm not like the biggest Metal Gear fan, but I, that does sound pretty interesting. So maybe I'll go and track that down. So, okay, cool, cool, cool. Thank you um, for bringing that up. That sounds very interesting. Um, there's one more thing to mention, um, if that's all right with you, before we get out of this section and start talking about some games. Can I, can I do one more? Of course you can do one more. All right, cool. Um, I don't generally like to do a whole lot of self-promotion, although I do want people to listen to this wonderful <laughs> podcast, and I want people to come to GameCritics.com and read the stuff that we do, because <laughs> it's so much fucking work, I want somebody to read it. But on a slightly different note, um, we don't talk about this often, uh, but I have written a couple of books, like actual book books um, in the past. I've written two and I had a couple others that were kind of cooking around, and I kind of just dropped it, because I once I got into it, I realized that writing was not really my thing. Um, but I did manage to publish two books, and I wanted to just say really quickly to anybody listening to this podcast, if you are listening this far, if you, if you listen to this show every week, and not only do you <laughs> listen to the show, but you listen to this banter every week, you're probably one of the true fans of this podcast, and maybe you think I'm an okay guy to listen to. Maybe, maybe not. not I don't want to not assume. Those, not those fake fans, but the not true the, ones. Not those, not those fake fans. Because <laughs> we have a lot of fake fans, let me tell you. The fake fans is pretty ridiculous. <laughs> they can never answer the trivia questions, which is how you catch them out. But uh, <laughs> No, no, no. So anyway, so what I'm saying is, uh, what, am I, what is my point? My point is, oh, okay. So my point being uh, that I just got word from my publisher that my uh, one of my books, uh, it's called Speaking in Forked Tongues, is going out of print. Um, sales were not great, which is totally fine because, honestly, I didn't do a lot of self-promotion 
and uh, my publisher made a small push for it at the beginning, but then they're a pretty small publisher, so they didn't have a lot of budget to get it out there either. The only hope it really had was like catching fire with word of mouth or going viral or something, and it just never caught fire, which is fine, totally fine. Um, and in retrospect, just speaking as an author for a second, there were things that I would change about it going back. Uh, I wasn't a hundred percent happy with it when it came out, but I don't think any author ever is. So, um, I don't think it's terrible, but I, it's definitely, there are a few things I'll to change, but anyway, getting off track, just a heads up to anybody out there that if you were ever curious about reading, uh, one of my books, uh, one of them is only available in an electronic version right now, but the other one still in print will be going out of print in another 20 days. So there might be a few copies laying around somewhere. You can still get it on Amazon right now. If you search my name, Brad Galloway, and all A's, no O's, or you speak, uh, you search for Speaking in Forked Tongues, you can get a Kindle edition, uh, which will still be there. So you can still read it if you don't want to order a paperback copy. But if you want a paperback copy, uh, the cheapest you can get it is $16.95, which I know sounds like a little bit much for a book, but it's a larger size book. It's got nice production quality, good paper. I really like the cover a lot. Uh, there's also uh, a non-Amazon seller who's selling it for $29, which I think is way too much. Don't pay that much for that book. Um, and that's me speaking as the author. Don't pay 30 bucks for my book. I mean, you can if you want to. You can do what you want with your money, but don't pay 30 bucks for my book. But $16.95, I feel like a little bit overpriced, but still not too bad. Anyway, you've got 20 days to buy it if you want to buy it. If you don't want to buy it, that's totally fine. I just wanted to give a heads up to everybody that it is going out of print. And there you go. So you can check it out on Amazon right now. And currently, I'm proud to say it has four and a half stars, which is pretty good. Although I don't have very many reviews, so I guess it kind of balances out. So anyway, <laughs> there you go. Heads up if you want to uh, check it out. Good. That's exciting. I uh, for This might sound rude on my part, but I know that you didn't write those books like terribly recently so i kind of just assumed that they were already out of print um i don't know if that's bad on my behalf maybe because <laughs> i mean maybe that speaks to you not really because you mentioned you kind of like mentioned every once in a while how you uh, used to write books but never like really went into the nitty-gritty of it so i just kind of assumed like oh you'd published them they had their run and now it was over but i'm actually interested to hear that it's still in print yeah it's actually been in print for quite a while um so which is which is good i mean sales have never been great but it's been selling here and there, and you know, people. I would every once in a while, I would get like a little email from somebody, but I mean, pretty seldom. It's it's hard to find that book because nobody really knows about it. Like I said, I didn't do a lot of publishing uh, uh, PR for it uh, after it came out because I I just got busy. I mean, like life and editing and game critics and being a parent and you know, like actually getting the book in people's hands is really difficult. Um, it's kind of like. Like, you know, like I always say, like, I get 200 emails a day from people who want me to look at their game and, like, I just don't have time, right? So, like, flip that around. If I'm one of those people who wants somebody to read my book and, like, trying to get through that filter to the busy book editor's hands or the busy book reviewer's hands, it's it's a real uphill climb. So I definitely, I get what that feels like. And it, it's a lot of work. And I just, to be honest, I just didn't want to put out the work because I uh, exhausted myself writing the book. I mean, it took me about a year and a half or two years to get it written and then get it published and to go through that whole process and... The publishing process is not easy, so doing that was a lot of work, and then the book finally came out, and I'm like, okay, cool, hopefully this thing's going to take care of itself and I can just rest, and that's not <laughs> at all how it works. Like, you got to keep going. I fully admit that I did not, like, fight the good fight when it came to PR for my book, which is fine. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, because, I mean, I, eventually by that point, I realized that writing was not where I wanted to be, and I really, my heart was really in games reviewing, and that's really where I like to live, so totally fine, and that's not a problem at all. But, yeah, it's been in, in print this whole time, which I think is kind of a little tiny little pat on the back to me which is great 
Uh, but yeah, that is coming to an end. You've got 20 days to get it, and otherwise, if you don't get it in 20 days, you can either not get it, and that's totally fine. I'll still respect you. <laughs> or you'll have to track it down secondhand, and you can expect to pay a lot more for that, which sucks. So don't pay more if you're in the, in the market. Get it now while it's cheap. And if you get it and you read it, let me know what you think. Uh, whether that's good or bad, I've always liked to get feedback from anyone who's ever come across one of my books. So there you go. Excellent. Did I tell you that whenever I was in college, I took a couple, I took a beginners and an intermediate nonfiction creative writing class. You did mention that. We didn't really talk about it very much, though. I mean, we don't have to deep dive because it's not really that interesting. But I just, whenever you're talking about self-promoting your book, um, I remember when I took my intermediate class, I cannot remember my instructor's name to save my life right now. I'd probably honestly have to go back and log into my university website and look through all my classes and see what his name was. But he had written a few books at that time. And I mean, I don't think he was like famous or anything, but he you know, had multiple publishing deals for a few books. And I remember him saying in our intermediate writing class that, that he... He loved writing and he loved, you know, crafting the stories. And I can't, I think he wrote both nonfiction and fiction and that, you know, he loved like putting his book out there. But once the book was out, he would do like book tours and stuff for like to promo his books. And he said that he hated doing book tours. Like he hated doing press. He hated traveling. He hated promoting it. Like he wished that he could just write the book, put it out, and then that would be the end of it. So he um, kind of, I mean, I guess I don't think you did like book tours to promote your book, but he said that the promo stuff was always his least favorite part of the entire procedure. It's awful. I actually did. I, I actually did a couple of appearances locally. Um, oh, for the book. yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> Hated doing it. Not fun at all. Um, it's that's a whole other story for a different day. But yeah, it's miserable. And that's really kind of why I was OK with like just kind of bowing out at that point because I mean to me like honestly my dream was just like to see a book in print like I wanted to hold a book that had my name on the spine and to to, you know just to say hey I made this thing and it's the thing that I did and you know kind of like a a physical representation of all the time and effort and imagination that I had and so I got that like I, I I remember getting my first box of books that the publisher sent me and I'm like oh my god this is my book and here's my name holy shit and they spelled it right and it's all exciting you know always no o's hooray hooray um and then after that it was like I just didn't have it in me to like get on the trail and fight for it and to to push it out there like that which is which is a huge part of being an author like unless you've got some kind of like amazing Hollywood tie-in deal right off the bat, or unless you've got an agent who just really like fights the good fight for you. Like it's really on you to get yourself out there. And I just, I didn't have it. Like I, my energy was in parenting and in being a husband and a father. And then also in keeping game critics running, which I, you know, I dearly love. I mean, it's been 19 years, so I'm never going to leave game critics and, uh, and just working, paying my bills and stuff. And by the end of the day, I just didn't have any juice left to like to, to, to push that book. So I had to make the choice of letting it go. Um, and that's just, that's just how it goes. And that's totally fine. I accept that hundred percent, but that is definitely a reality. The PR, the push, the appearances, it's a lot of fucking work and you gotta like be hungry for it. And I was, I was not enough. I was not hungry enough for it. So that's, that's where I fell off. So yeah, right. I'm sure that the publisher put the book out and you made your millions. You probably have all your cash and some storage facility in Seattle. And they're like, you know what? This book is just making too much money. It's overshadowing the rest of everything we're publishing. So we're just going to have to <laughs> shut printing down on it for now. Oh, my God. You are a creative fiction writer. Wow. That is like the most amazing story I've ever heard. Please. <laughs> All right, dude. We should probably wrap this shit up and start talking about some games. What do you think? I am very excited to talk about games. So let's All go. right. All right. Let's talk about some games. <laughs>